Hello and welcome to the Weekly Stuff Podcast with Jonathan Lack and Sean Chapman. We are here as always to talk about stuff this week on the show. This is the calm before the Star Wars storm. We are yeah. recording this Monday night. Star Wars premieres tomorrow night in Hollywood. Premieres Thursday night for everyone. And I assume the world will just drown in a sea of cosplay. Yeah, there will be nostalgia. There may be sighs of relief that echo or tears that stream down the streets. Probably both. Yeah. I am fascinated to see what kind of reviews this movie gets. Yeah. And that's completely independent of what my own thoughts on it will be. I just wonder if, is the bar too high that everyone's going to hate it? Or is it going to be something that's universally accepted? I don't know. It, yeah, I'm also really curious like how, like how the what the professional reviews are going to be like compared to what the audience yeah. response is going to be like. Yeah, yeah, because those reviews are going to start coming out any day now. Probably Wednesday morning, basically. Because, like, I mean, that has to be if you're a professional film reviewer and, like, you're reviewing Star Wars ahead of, like, the general public being able to see it. You have to realize that your review is completely pointless. Yes. Like... There's, like, in the face of the huge nostalgia that that franchise represents and the just unprecedented marketing onslaught that Disney has unleashed upon the world in such an obnoxious fashion with this new Star Wars movie that's like, what the, who gives a shit about your review? Like, the most that you can hope that your review is going to be is, like, a, like, quote on a TV spot, like, a month from now, you know, for the movie. I guess, and I also just think it's a lose-lose proposition because if you like it, there's going to be fans who are going to hate this movie who are going to bitch at you online. Yeah. And if you hate it, there's going to be fans who love it who are going to bitch at you online. So I don't know if I would even review it. Like, we'll talk about it on the podcast, obviously. Yeah. But, yeah, I, I'm I'm honestly surprised Disney bothered to show it to critics. Because it's also like, I'm not going to re read any reviews. I don't want it spoiled, you know? It's like... Yeah. And, and, and it is a situation where it's like, you. it's such a massive cultural phenomena that... Unless you are, like, an incredibly stubborn person or someone who's, like, seriously just does not give a shit about popular culture, you have to see the movie. Yes. And so the review is pointless on so many levels just in terms of, like, it's your, like, this tiny little whisper in this massive cacophony of all the information around this movie with all the marketing. But then also, like, there is no way that your opinion is ever going to sway anybody on whether or not they're going to see this movie. Like, people know if they're going to see this movie or not, because most of the people who are going to see the movie have probably already bought their fucking tickets. Yeah, I got my tickets 7 p.m. Thursday night, so... Yeah, I haven't, I haven't bought tickets, so I'm not sure when I'll be able to see the movie. Yeah, well, you know, if you... I don't know what the last time it was you went over to this theater in Boulder. Yeah. They have reserved seating now, so it'll be really easy to go see the movie if you want over there, because you can reserve your tickets and not have to, like, wait in line. Yeah. But, yeah. There's something where, like, I... Almost on principle, I kind of refuse to pre-buy tickets and to wait in lines for theaters because I don't like theaters and I don't want to like I don't want to go through that hassle and I don't yeah. care about seeing movies like the second they come out and I'm sure I'll be able to see Star Wars within like three or four days of it coming out and not have an issue with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, anyway, that'll be next week on the show. We are, as the opening theme taught us, we are going to talk a little bit of Star Wars today. Basically, the main topic today is just going to be Star Wars memories. I, you know, we've talked about Star Wars before on the show. Actually, not on this version of the show. Back on, I think, there's a monthly ten series of episodes yeah. where we went over our thoughts on all the movies and stuff. And yeah, that was, that was back when the Blu-ray versions came, came out. out yeah. yeah, And I don't think our thoughts have evolved significantly since then. But I think there are other things we can talk about just in terms of... I, I don't even really want to, like, structure the discussion. I just yeah. want to see where it takes us because Star Wars... I just had a realization, I was starting to go through the franchise again with my little brother, we were home for Thanksgiving break, and I started watching Phantom Menace, and 
it's not that I even I love hate any of those movies. It's that yeah. part of it is that Star Wars, the good and the bad, is kind of just memories to me. Sure, yeah. And I'm I almost can't even go back and access it now. It's a weird thing of like rewatching those isn't a big deal to me anymore, and it's kind of why I'm excited for a new movie because it's something new. Yeah. Um, but I think that's why I kind of wanted to on the podcast just talk about it in the context of those things. Like, what does Star Wars mean maybe to us? What are we excited and not excited about for the future? Those sorts of things. Yeah, and it is it is our last opportunity because we have been touching on this stuff. I mean, for the entire length of this podcast, because like Star Wars Episode Seven has been such huge news for so long, and, and I think we both like Star Wars a lot, and so it's something that I feel like we have only like it's been very rare that there's been an episode of this podcast that we have not like mentioned it in some way. Yeah, and so it's our last opportunity to have like a real discussion about it before Episode Seven comes out, and we can just. Talk about that. Yes. All right. So, before then, we have some bits of news to talk about. Bunch of movie trailers and shit this last yeah. week. Um, I wanted to follow up with one thing from previous discussions on the show. All right. Because we obviously have spent the last three months praising Doctor Who to no end. Yes. Have you seen that the BBC has been releasing certain scripts from this season online? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's really I, cool. It's really cool. And I looked at the script for Heaven Sent in particular because mm-hmm. we were talking about with that episode which is the you know Dr. Solo episode well how the hell was that written there's some scenes where you wonder what was the actual what was on the page yeah and it's fascinating yeah. I don't know if you I, I looked at yeah. it too yeah like specifically I wanted to see the montage scene stuff and stuff yeah. like that it's see a, how, how like what was actually written down yep and it's a very intricate piece of writing yeah where a lot of it did clearly come together in the shooting and the editing but a lot of it was in Stephen Moffat's head on the page yeah too. like the broad structure of that montage is definitely present in the script even though yeah. like like I think the near the end of the montage is where like a lot of like what the, the director's vision came in it yes. feels like but yeah yeah, it's just, it's cool that they're putting that stuff out and you can read some of those things because you also just get a little of, like, Stephen Moffat's writer personality in, the sh- in like, the, the stage notes and stuff. Yeah. And it's just kind of funny because mostly he's very straightforward in how he's describing things. And then he'll kind of go on and, like, have a funny aside or something. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. So I just wanted to mention that because it's particularly fascinating for an episode like that. You also realize the script for Heaven Sent is, like, 70 pages long yeah. for a 55-minute episode. And that's, I think, just from the sheer amount of dialogue and complexity of the structure. It's a much longer script than you might expect for the runtime it is. Yeah, yeah, so, it's yeah. really interesting stuff. It's always nice when you get a little peek behind the curtains and you get, yeah. like, some... And especially something like that where it's, like, you just get access to, like, an artifact that is essential in the making of the episode, which I think is a lot more valuable than just, like... I like having documentary material and stuff like that, but having access to the actual scripts a lot more interesting to me. Yes, definitely cool. So, good on BBC for that. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and let's see any stuff. Sean, you've been playing a new game. You want to talk about that? Yes, I, I finally popped open Assassin's Creed Syndicate and I've, I've put a decent chunk of time into it. Most of it I've been sort of doing side stuff and kind of blocking along with, along with the main story because with Fallout 4, I, I will probably go back to Fallout 4 a little bit at some point after I'm done with Syndicate, but I feel like I finally reached that point with the game where I was like, now, most of the, less, the, the stuff left for me to do is just the main story stuff, and I reached the same point with Fallout 4 that I did with Skyrim, and I was like, eh, I don't need to do it. Like, it's probably fine. It's, I have no ex- expectation that it's going to be great, and I don't, like none, like, none of the impressions online have given me any indication that the main story is something I really desperately need to see through. And so it was like, 
I, I think a very valuable skill to learn when you're playing a game like that is to know when you are done with it and put it down because it's very easy with a game like that or a game like Destiny or anything that's that huge and has a lot of people content and stuff like that is to know when you are done with the game and not when like the game is done, right? Like, is there's that that impression of like, well, you need to sit down and beat a game and like 100% a game or like see the main story through or whatever parameters that any individual person has for like beating or clearing a game is and a game like fallout 4 there are no parameters that are reasonable to set for yourself that says that i have finished this game unless you are in a complete fucking maniac platinum and trophy s- yeah and want to get a platinum trophy and see like literally do every single quest get every unique item like go to every single location complete every like companion like dialogue stuff and see all that stuff through unless you want to completely 100% this game like a complete maniac there's like there there is no place to stop playing the game other than when you decide I've played enough of this game and if I keep on digging into it more I'm just going to start disliking the game because I've already had as much fun with the game as I'm going to have and that took 60 hours for me, basically, is where my save file is at. It's like, I am completely fucking satisfied with that. And, and it's something where a lot of the discussion with every single Bethesda game, at least of, like since like I've been paying attention to them, there's always been this point where like a week after the game comes out, there is a huge turn on it from a certain section of the audience of people saying, it's like, I put 240 hours into this game and this game sucks. And it's like... No, you have just played this game to complete fucking death and no longer have any perspective on the game at all. Because it's like, you have been bored by this game for the last 50 hours you've been playing it. You've just refused to put the game down and do something else. And that's not anything that a sane person would do. It would be like someone saying, it's like, I hate the Lord of the Rings books because I just read them 12 times in a row without doing anything like reading any other books. It's like... No, you're just a fucking insane person. Don't do that. And it's a danger with video games that there is not usually that clear, distinct stopping point in a game like that. That people just play the games past the point that they're actually interested in it. And everything is going to have that breaking point. You can't play any game forever and still find it fun and engaging. So it's like a bit of a rant there, but it was something that's like I've seen that so much. And like Skyrim had it, Oblivion had it, Fallout 3 had it. It was like... Destiny had it of like it's hard, but know when to put the game down and Destiny like walk also, away. It, it, it depends on what phase of Destiny you're talking yes. about. But but there is like there there was a point where it's like I think we both had it where we recognized like yes. we have played this game too much. Like we yes. like we should have like I should have stopped playing this game about twelve hours like in game time ago. Like yeah. I should have walked away. And I would have in, I would have better impressions on this game and a better perspective on this game maybe. And now like having played it this much past my actual interest in it, all I can see in the game are the things that annoy me about the game and not right. the things that are really like remarkable about it. It's like when you're married to someone for too long. Sure, you just got to cut it off at a certain point. I don't have any personal perspective <laughs> on that, so. Maybe that's it. what it's like, Jonathan. I don't know. Maybe you have this whole life that I haven't known about. And I'm, I'm suddenly crying out for help on the yeah. podcast. <laughs> it's like, I've never noticed that you wear that ring every single day, huh? <laughs> All right, no, go ahead. Assassin's Creed Syndicate, yeah, though. Are so you, that's, do you hate that's my Assassin's last word Creed on Syndicate yet? No, no, I, I like it a lot. It's something where... So I'm, I'm really happy that I did not play Assassin's Creed Unity and I am free from the Assassin's Creed curse. Because that's 
I'm never going... I've decided for sure I'm never going to go back, back and play Unity now. Because it's the first time I've ever skipped over an Assassin's Creed game. Like, up to that point, I played every single, like, mainline Assassin's Creed reason. game. From 1 to 4. Yes, I, it, I don't know why. I did Even that. though you disliked most of them. Yeah. Everything, basically everything after 2, other than 4. I, so, like, Brotherhood, Res- Revelations, and 3, I all had severe misgivings. Or, like, just and outright distaste for. Yeah, so. but, like... That's a complete one. Is a totally different conversation in terms of. I just Assassin's say Creed. you yes. played like five games and you liked two of them. Yeah, but it, but Assassin's Creed Two and Assassin's Creed Four are both really good fucking games. Yes, so just make that clear. But yeah, so I've broken free of my Assassin's Creed curse, so I can I can approach a syndicate with a fresh perspective, an open mind, like a free soul. Now that's like I have broken those chains that Assassin's Creed had over me. I was like, I just took a stand with Unity. It was like, no, everyone says that this game is bad and that it's buggy and that it's just, and it's a step backwards, most importantly, from what Assassin's Creed 4 did. And Assassin's Creed 4, I still think that after, like, with the amount of Syndicate I played and I really like Syndicate, Assassin's Creed 4 is still the best Assassin's Creed game by far because of the, all the stuff that the pirate and boat side of the game brought to this franchise. But yeah, like, Assassin's Creed Unity, no. No, just never, no. Not doing it. But Syndicate, the, the main reasons I want to do Syndicate is that it reviewed very well and that the Victorian setting, because it, it's, at least the parts of the game I played are all set in basically 1860s Victorian London. And I think, I don't think there's any other city, but it might time jump later. But so it's set in like mid, like core Victorian-ass Victorian England, like you are in London and that is the setting, and I have a huge amount of experience with studying Victorian literature at university, and so I have a lot of, like, information and perspective and interest in the culture and, like, the thoughts and just the tone in the, the world of Victorian London and the art that it created, and the, just, like, the weird, like, vast, insane contradictions that define that culture that, like, still sort of, like, define a lot of what Western culture is like. And so I wanted to see what Assassin's Creed would do with that and was one of the main things that attracted me to Syndicate. And so my relationship with Syndicate is weird in that I think that as a game, like just if you're approaching it as a game and stripping it of like its potential and like the things that it could and maybe should do and tackle with the subject matter that it's presented with the time period, I think Assassin's Creed Syndicate is a really fun game. I think the changes that they have made, which some of these may have been made in Unity, I don't know, but the changes they have made to like the how stealth works and how combat works and how traversal works, whether you have this grappling hook that makes moving around the environment and climbing up buildings and moving between buildings much easier and much quicker. I think those are all very smart improvements to the formula that just make Assassin's Creed more sort of engaging, and at least it's it's a change-up, like you like, Assassin's Creed stuck with the same combat system from 1 all the way through 4. And now it's like having something that, even though it's not amazing and it's a bit maybe too Arkham Batman-y for my taste, of like, where maybe we should move past what that combat system has done and like find like new paradigms, because we've been on that for a long time now. It's still like a breath of fresh air for an Assassin's Creed game to like be like, okay, it's not just counter kill, then like string chain kills and kill 100 people in the room without ever being ch- touched. And so that stuff's all fun, and I enjoy the combat, and I enjoy the stealth. And the main thing about Syndicate that's really engaging is that it has this whole gang component of it, because you are playing as these two assassins, Jacob and Evie Fry, who are coming to London to both sort of take back London from the Templars, 
and then also to find a piece of Eden is what the the female protagonist Evie mostly wants to do. And to do that, they basically create this gang called the Rooks and start a gang war with the Blighters, which are what the Templars have. It's weird. It's like the the this sounds oh, great. The introduction to the game is really weird because it like bulls through that stuff so quickly. It's like and and it's nice because it's. Assassin's Creed games usually have very long bloated openings and this like it's like 32 minutes to an hour and you're just like in and doing gang stuff and you're like they just made the leap from like these two relatively unexperienced assassins going to like against orders and going to London because the assassin order does not want them to go to London because they're like we're not ready to take it back yet it's like too entrenched as Templar toward territory we're like working around the outskirts and they're like, no, we're just going to go there, and we're just going to make a gang, and we're just going to take over the streets. And it's like, you have jumped to this conclusion incredibly quickly and made this gang in, like, half an hour. And I'm very impressed that you were able to do this. So the, the, it, the, it doesn't introduce its concepts particularly well. The pacing there's a little strange. But the gang stuff does give it a sort of... I mean, it's very Saints Row the Third esque. If because I mean, one of the developers from Saints Row the Third is a like high up creative director on this game, so it's almost kind of like what happened with Republic Commando and Halo Five that they just took a lot of the gang like takeover like district mechanics of Saints Row and just like brought it here. And those mechanics have always been fun in like any game I've ever played, like all the way back to like Grand Theft Auto San Andreas. I've always loved that shit. Of, like, you just open up your map, and, like, there are different sections of the map, and it's like, these sections are red. And then you go to those sections, and you, like, kill a couple of motherfuckers, and now they're your color. And they're your place, and, like, your guys are there, and you're getting money because you own that district. And I think, like, that stuff's always great, and that is a really fun and engaging sort of, like, primary side activity that, to me, is what sort of defines this game in the same way that the boat pirate aspect defines Assassin's Creed 4. And this isn't quite as compelling and unique as what Assassin's Creed 4 has, but it is at least it's something to sort of like differentiate this from the whole like deluge of Assassin's Creed games that tend to be very samey. So that's like the gameplay side of the game and I think that all that stuff's really good. The main part of the game that right now I'm very disappointed with is I don't think it handles the setting as well as it could, which is something that like I mostly expected going in because I don't think Assassin's Creed games have ever quite grasped their setting and I think they've kind of gotten worse at it and there's like a severe turning point where like assassin's creed 3 is a game that really understood its setting had a very interesting perspective and had something to say about that setting but the pacing and the, and the aspects with the storytelling put a lot of people off and were not maybe handled as well as they should have been and so assassin's creed 3 was widely critically rejected when it came out and that's really unfortunate because i think what that told Ubisoft was that the audience maybe was not as interested in a, a very ambitious Assassin's Creed game with like 3 was, with really tackling the issues of what Colonial America was and maybe like what it represents and like the turning point that Colonial America is in like world history and that it's not just like a black and white America is good, England was bad, yay, we fought for freedom and we won, but there's a huge tangle of messy issues involved with all of that, with the politics and with Native Americans. The Assassin's Creed 3, for all its faults, it at least like really tried to get into those issues and I thought it had an interesting perspective on them, but since it was so panned and like it dropped the ball in a lot of other ways, like then you just went back to what Assassin's Creed 2 was, which is like 
the set we do we touch on the setting a little bit we have like leonardo da vinci shows up and he's like a fun goofy like like scientist dude and he makes all your gadgets he's like james bond's q basically it's like it's fun yay and there's like a little bit of like hey there's like the de medicis and you might learn a little bit about like the renaissance history but we're not actually going to get into like have an interesting perspective on what the renaissance means and what it is and like what we think that the renaissance is and what we're going to represent it as artistically and said it's like it's a fun playground and assassin's creed 4 works because like i think like the caribbean being a fun playground is a valid representation of that historically for like the pirates and it sort of and it, it explores the themes of it and it does a decent job at that but it also is able to have like that underpinning of like we can make our like hero character this like swashbuckling like fun guy because that's what the perspective on this period is yeah and i would just also argue that black flag has an interesting perspective in like its last yeah. third of where it turns and talks yeah about and it does it, it problematizes a lot of that stuff in an interesting way but it like yeah but it could be a lot more ambitious in how it handles that stuff and like have that stuff be more present throughout the whole game right and so, like, and so, yeah, that's sort of how I feel, like, Assassin's Creed. And Assassin's Creed 1, again, for all of its faults, did, like, like tackling the Crusades, had, like, a very interesting, messy perspective on that historical era, era which is a very messy historical era, era for, like, how the way that the West clashed with the East and the, the religious conflict and how that maybe speaks to us today. And I wish that Assassin's Creed would, like, be ambitious again because it's, like... That's what's the most interesting, and it's like, and one of the things that makes Assassin's Creed Four really good is that at the end it does problematize a lot of its themes, and it does say that like, hey, maybe these historical figures, like, it's all fun and games at some point, but you have to grow up, and like, this life isn't good, and these people aren't necessarily always good, and it's not something always to aspire to, and that like that sort of like anarchical freedom is not always ideal, which is a sort of like interesting perspective also on the assassin's ideology. But, like, you, I think the series needs to go deeper on that stuff for it to justify putting out a new game every single year. And, like, being the only franchise that is representing this, these historical periods means that, in video games at least, means that it has this huge opportunity to do something really interesting with it. And something they've always done fantastically. And it's one of the things that I absolutely adore about Syndicate and missed in 4 because 4 was so open with the sea is that Syndicate is in London, and that's it. And, like, they really flesh out London and make London a fascinating, fun, intriguing place to explore. And I'm obviously not, like, an architectural expert, but I have a huge amount of faith in the people that work on these games that they represent it faithfully as much as one can and also make it a playable environment for the game. But, you know, like, being able to, like, explore the Thames and jump on all these boats and stuff like that and seeing the smog on the horizon from the factories and stuff like that, all that stuff is really cool, and I think they do a great job at representing London in its Victorian setting. But it's, like, how they fill that city, I think, is a very sort of flat and surface-level interpretation of what the Victorian era, and particularly the Industrial Revolution, which is mostly what this uh, game is interested in and what that means. And so it's a lot of, like, orphans. It's a lot of, like, going in, like, there's child labor and there's smog and there's, like, industrial competition. And you meet Karl Marx, which is a complicated thing for me because Karl Marx is a cool historical figure, but then I've also just been reading so much, been forced to read so much Marxist criticism over the past six months for one class. I, I just... Fucking Marx is it's just... 
It's also really weird that Karl Marx is he's basically there like like involved with labor s- stuff and the he he never specifically tells you to go and like kill people but the objectives of your missions when you go on Karl Marx side missions always end up that you are just fucking stabbing people and I'm like I don't this is not a faithful representation of Marx and like his ideologies like that's not like, you know, he had, like, obviously his issues with capitalism and stuff like that, but he was never a guy who was like, well, let's go kill everybody. He was way not into that, so that stuff's weird. And I guess that's that's the stuff that I mean when I feel like it's a very surface representation It sounds of it. like maybe they've read it, or they've heard the plot of a Charles Dickens book, but not actually read it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That it, it gets the, like, facts of, like, yes, like, there was child labor and it was bad. And yes, there was, like, this, like, intense capitalist industrial competition and that was largely bad. And it's like, these things happened and existed, and you had these orphans and all this stuff. But you don't... It never captures the tone, to me, of the Victorian era. It never feels like it is, like, like thematically and stylistically authentic to the Victorian period, the way that the buildings are authentic to, like, the architecture of the Victorian period. I don't think the story represents the same sort of authenticity to me. And obviously that's a very personal thing, but, like, I have read so many of these novels and been so engrossed in that period for, like, the past three years of my life that, like, it's it's very disappointing to me that there's so much interesting material. And it's stuff like, and maybe they'll get into this, and there are a couple of sections, like, there's one part where you go to an asylum where it maybe gets a little bit more into some of the stuff that was going on in the Victorian period that's interesting to talk about from a modern perspective. But there's something like you. This is the first Assassin's Creed game that has a female protagonist, Evie Fry, and you get to switch between her and her brother Jacob, like whenever you want to. And I vastly prefer Evie. She's a much more interesting character. But there's something very strange that it's like there is so much like like the Victorian perspective on women is so crazy and so fascinating and is so just completely just full of these insane contradictions that like that, that society had no idea what to make of women and how to represent women and what like the female role in society was and had all these insane contradictory expectations of what women are and what they should be and like it's it's such a meaty topic to get into but then with like Evie and I don't necessarily want Evie to have to be saddled with all that thematic material, but there's just some points where you're like, she is so, like, she is so insanely radical from a Victorian perspective. Like, she's walking around all the time alone. Like, she's, there's no man with her, you know? Like, she's unescorted. She is in her early 20s. She's not interested in, like, necessarily... Maybe there will be a romantic subplot. I don't know. Right now, she's not interested in getting married. She's wearing pants. Like, okay, that, that yeah. is not okay from a Victorian perspective. And it's like... That may sound silly for people that don't have a lot of experience with the norms of that period. But, like, that shit is crazy. And she's, like... And she's also sort of, like, vaguely upper middle class. They never get into... This is also another area where that maybe should be explored a little bit more is like where the fries themselves actually fall on like the class hierarchy. But the, again, like it's such a simplistic perspective that it's just like you just have the capitalists and you basically just have like the orphans and the abused proletariat and they never get into stuff like, well, what is the old aristocracy doing? Because like a huge conflict in the Victorian period 
that, in my opinion, cannot be overlooked if you're representing it, is that you had the old feudal structure that still had a huge amount of influence and power of the aristocracy that owned land and had blood and were noble in that sense, and their conflicts with the rising middle class and the, the that were so empowered by the Industrial Revolution and had so much money that they were far richer on average than the aristocracy were and so they economically had the power but socially they were regarded as being inferior because they didn't have the noble blood and there was there's so much material there to be mined and it's such an interesting conflict that's like they never get into that side of it you know and it's like they never get into the like the woman problem that the victorians had and they never get into the sexuality problems that the victorians had it's and that stuff Again, you don't necessarily need to tackle all of those in this game, but I think the presence of some of these characters and what they're doing provides you this opportunity to do that stuff. And it's just such a disappointment to me personally, since I do have so much investment in this historical period, that they don't dive into that stuff. And it's it's just a wasted opportunity. And every time I'm like waiting for it, like, come on, like really like do like say something interesting and say something new about the Victorian period because there's always something new to say. There's always a new perspective to bring because it is so rife with contradiction that there's always a new way to wiggle in there and see something from a different perspective and they never avail themselves of that opportunity. That's too bad. I definitely see what you're saying with like Evie because it's just the sort of thing where if you have even a basic understanding of norms during that period, yeah. it would just be distracting because you want to say, you know, oh, okay, she's she's a good, strong, independent woman and all those things, but it would be really tough for her to do any of the things she does in the game in that setting because, if, as you say, the thing about walking around in Panth is, like, she would just get arrested and flogged for that, and it's horrible, but that's what would happen. And she would, like, not be able to hold a conversation. Like, like you would go up to a quest giver, and, like, the entire conversation would be about, like... Who the fuck are, like, what the fuck are you? Like, well, what are you doing? And it's crazy, because it's not the kind of thing Assassin's Creed has always ignored. And for you yeah. have that character who, I forget her name, but she's the main female character in the game, but she's presenting herself as a boy for yeah, most of it. Yeah. And just that little touch that she has to present herself as a boy around pirates makes complete sense and allows you to buy that character in that world completely. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that she has to be saddled with every feminist issue of the time. Yeah. But, yeah, you do have to kind of think about those things a little bit. Because it's just something where, and again, I haven't finished the game, so it's something that can definitely come up. But it's like, I mean, I've played a lot of the game so far, and it's never come up. And the fact that it's never been addressed, that it's like, how is this not... This has to be something that you bring up. Like, this... Because, obviously, because all the other characters, like the, the female characters represented in the game, are either posing as men, and there's one character that hasn't, like outed herself I guess but like is very it's very clearly a Nauto persona thing is going on like there's no disguising what's going on there and so it's like it's either that or they're like proper Victorian women in the sense of like at least they, they, they present themselves as being proper Victorian women and it's like Evie being there so apart from the, the norms and mores of her time just feels so bizarre and it's something that like I actually had this revelation playing the game like three hours ago because I was thinking about having to talk about it on this podcast, of what the of what it reminded me of, of like how this has handled the Victorian period. And I think what it most reminds me of are those Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes movies, of that it's like you're having, we're set in the Victorian period and we're having fun with it. And it's like we, you know, we get to kind of have that sort of like very high English style of writing and stuff and the, the fun like British accents and all that stuff. And you get to touch on a couple of the issues of the day, but 
we're not really interested in them. We're more interested in having, like, a big, fun, violent adventure that is not in any way keeping with, like, the tone of the era, you know? And you only saw the good one of those two. And I would question whether or not that's even a good one, but... I like that movie, and especially... Okay, maybe comparatively it's a good one. I I always liked that one. Sure. But, and I understand it has those issues, but I think just as a fun, pulpy thing, I like it. But the second one is where, like, they're building fucking rockets and shit, and it completely throws just, like, basic reality out the window. Yeah. Not just historical reality, just, like, no, you can't do that. Moriarty's, like, building fucking rocket plant in that movie. It's ridiculous. Anyway, yeah, no, yeah. I know what you're saying. Well, that's too bad. I, 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 I do want to play this game at some point. I don't know when yeah. I will. But. And I, sh- I should say that with all those complaints, I'm in no way saying that it's a bad game and that people shouldn't play it. I'm saying that, like, from my very personal perspective and something that I hope this series would do, it's like this series still isn't doing it. And the, well, this one's the, hitting me a little bit harder than the other. It's others. the kind of thing because you're, what you're saying is, okay, you're doing almost everything well. There's just this one piece. Yeah, and, and if they nailed that one piece, like, they could do something that nothing else does. Yeah. Which is like, again, no other games are doing this. No other games are trying to represent historical periods, like, basically at all. And I think that's a huge waste of the medium because... We have this ability to create these big open worlds, and we use it on either contemporary settings or fantasy settings, and I enjoy both of those quite a bit. I think it's like, there's so much potential. It's something like, you know, something like what L.A. Noir did that did it fantastically. It was like, let's, yeah, like, let's make a story set in, like, 50s, like, post-World War II L.A., and have it, like, deal with, like, that noir genre, and really have something to say about it and immerse you in that setting in a way that, like, the movies and the novels of that style and in that setting can't quite do because they don't have that quality that video games do. It's like Assassin's Creed, like, I think is doing a lot of good simply by the virtue of them being ambitious with representing these historical periods and doing such a great job, at least on the surface level, and creating the, the cities and stuff. But, like, if you just went that one extra mile, they could make something, like, truly great, like, really remarkable. And Assassin's Creed has flirted with that line so much that it just frustrates me every time that then they do something fucking stupid, like Assassin's Creed 3, where they fuck up the pacing really bad, and they, like, ruin the Desmond storyline and don't quite nail that side of it. And so it's like, well, then all the rest of the effort of the, all the other stuff you did good is kind of on the overall project has gone to waste because you fucked up these couple of parts. It's like, goddamn it, Assassin's Creed. It's the reason why I played all these fucking games. It's like, I want it to be what it can be, and it's never quite made it. Yeah. All right, well, let's go ahead. I have a game to talk about, too. All right. So we have another entry in. Jonathan starts catching up on a popular game franchise theater. Yay! Yay. All right. For reasons, it's too long to go in here. Long story. Punchline is, I bought a new PS4. Not a funny punchline, just... But you said punchline, so I thought it's okay. Contribute. No, it's fine. And uh, I got the Uncharted Nathan Drake Collection bundle, because I'm like, not going to get the Battlefront one. That's a (laughs) shitty game. Yeah, that is is absolutely the right choice between those two. And they don't really... Yeah, and I don't need the Last of Us bundle, so let's get get Uncharted. And uh, so so I've never played the Uncharted games. Yes. Obviously, I'm going to play Uncharted 4 next year. Huge game. Big deal. We'll be talking about it on here, obviously. Yeah. Um, But I've never played those games, even though, clearly, from everything I've seen, those are games made for me that I would love. Yeah, I mean, because if you go back to, I guess it would be like a year, year and a half ago now, when I played through those games on the PS3... And I have my issues with Uncharted overall. I very much like those games. So I believe I told you then that it's like, you should fucking play these games because they are so made for you. Yeah. 
Uh, yeah, they're so made for me. So yeah, I see. I started playing the first one, Drake's Fortune, last night, and I'm already 75% of the way through. Oh, cool. Because they give you a little counter on the yeah. save screen. And uh, first thing I'll say about the Nathan Drake collection is, one, I love that it is shamelessly just ripping off the Master Chief collection thing. Right. Of now, it's instead of Halo, the Master Chief collection, it's Uncharted, the Nathan Drake collection. Which is funny, because there's no other character. Yeah, like, exactly. To base there, there's no... Yeah, there, because it's like... The, the one Uncharted game it's missing is Golden Abyss, but that game, which is the Vita game, but that game has Nathan Drake as the protagonist and yeah. the only character you play as. So yeah, there's no, there are no other Uncharted games that are not the Nathan Drake games that you yeah. can excuse from the collection. But they also learned from the Master Chief Collection's mistakes. They did not try to house them all under one crazy engine or something. Right. So it's much more like if you ever played those PS2 sets that would come out on PS3. Right, And you yeah. go in and you'll have your menu and then you go to the games. It's much faster because it's on PS4. But you do have to switch around if you want to play them. Which is fine. That's yeah, because it's, it's like it's three sing- mostly single-player focused games. Like two and yeah. three had their multiplayer modes. Which are but... not in this version. Okay, yeah. So yeah, like you're there to play the single-player. Yeah. You're not going to sit there and it's like, I'm going to play one mission of Uncharted think I'm going to go play the sand, like the desert part of Uncharted 3 now. It's like, oh, that like train section from 2 was really cool. Let's go play that now. Yeah. And the remasters are fantastic. I yeah. mean, it's, it's 1080p and 60 frames per second and Drake's Fortune is an old game at this point. 2007. Yes, yeah. And it looks fucking gorgeous. Like, it's one of the most gorgeous games I've ever played and I know it's at the far end of this these three. Like, once I get to three, I'll be really blown away. Yeah. But, like, it, it looks and runs so fucking good. It's one of those things if it's like, yeah, it's probably good that I just waited because now I get to the, experience these better than ever before. Yeah. And with the DualShock 4 and everything, so I don't have to hurt my hands playing it and yeah. stuff like that. I did, because when the Nathan Drake collection came out, they released a free demo of it on PS4, and just out of curiosity, I downloaded that. And it's a section from sort of like the early parts of Uncharted 2, and that looked amazing. So yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, Naughty Dog, as we know from stuff like Last of Us, they make such just fucking visually rich games. Yeah. And take like with Last of Us Remastered, you take that and you put that polish on it that you can't get from last-gen hardware, and it's just magic. You yeah. know, it's just yeah. incredible. So, really like that. And yeah, I I got like five minutes into Uncharted, I'm just cackling. Like, yes, this is so good. The And I have my problems with it. I'll talk about that sure, in a second. Yeah. But it, like, yeah. Drake's Fortune has some issues. But the like opening cutscene where it's just... It's Nathan and Elena on the on the ship, and he's being a fucking shithead because they're out in pirate waters, and he's stolen this boat basically, or they're, they're they don't have a yeah. permit to be there, and she's trying to do this project, and he's not being helpful, and all this stuff, and I'm like, yep, this is great. Naughty Dog is so good at character, like yeah. those Uncharted that game, just in every cutscene has more of a sense of character than like 99 percent of games I've ever played. Yes, they just nail that, and Nolan North. Fucking great actor. Yeah, now you see, like, why when that game came out, like, Nolan North was, like, the vanguard of, like, the revolution in voice acting and, like, yes. performance capture for video games. Because I've heard him in a million places, obviously, yeah. but this is his signature role, and it's great. And, and it's one of the things that I think is interesting about Nolan North versus, like, a Troy Baker is that, for the most part, I can always tell when Troy Baker is doing a voice. Yeah. And Nolan North is much more of a chameleon to me. Like, I can't always tell when it's him. Yeah. Like, his role in The Last of Us, you could never imagine that's Nolan North. Yeah, absolutely. And, like, same same in Uncharted. Like, maybe that's closer to his normal speaking voice. But it's just, he's creating that character so much, he just sinks into it. And all the acting in that is great, though. I love all the characters. I love I'm, Elena and Sully, too. Sully is so... He, Sully is, like, one of my favorite video game characters of all time. He is so good. And I... Here's the funny thing. Of course, just through the ether, I've heard of Nathan Drake, Sully, Elena, all these yeah. people. I know Elena and Drake get together, all that yes. stuff. And I know Sully is his best friend. And so, like, 
two hours into Drake's fortune, they kill Sully. Oh, and I, they I forgot him. they did that. Yeah. And I'm like, well, I know he's not dead. I, yeah. he, you've got, they're going to bring Buff, and he does get brought back like five hours later. It's like, okay, he's back, good. Like, how different would that franchise be if, if they just <laughs> killed Sully there? Like, he's such a, he's just one of the most lovable characters I've ever encountered. Like, I just adore the guy. He's great. It'd, it'd be heartbreaking if we never had him. Yeah, so, and I really think it's fun. I think the environments they build in that game are so great, and I just love that side of it. I think the way they build set pieces is fantastic. It has that kind of Indiana Jones adventure serial spirit without at all feeling like a ripoff of anything. It completely feels like its own thing, and I love that about it, because you can look at a lot of Indiana Jones or Indiana Jones-adjacent knockoffs, and you see where they're getting their inspiration. With this, it's just... This is its own thing. I can tell what they love, and they love the same things I love. Yeah. But this is this is something different, and I like that. Like, Nathan Drake starts as a certain archetype, but he's much more than that. Yeah, yeah. He's And like you said, like, they handle character so well that even though I think all of, like, the, that sort of trio of Nathan, Elena, and Sully do fit into archetypes that you've seen in, like, dozens of sort of adventure movies, like, they are so distinct, and there's such subtle difference and they they really get into the characters and humanize the characters in so many ways that you don't even think about the fact that it's like well yeah like he's like this character is vaguely similar to like this sort of archetypal role in this kind of story it's like they handle those characters so well that they just live on their own outside of that sort of genre convention absolutely so i love exploring those areas i love that side of it uh you know there's not a ton of puzzle solving in the game but i like it when that comes up yeah and I think just the general mechanics of climbing and movement is so good. Like, it's kind of... I'm looking at it, and I'm like, they made this in 2007? Video game movement was still wonky and shitty in a lot of games back then. No, I mean, I remember, like, the game franchise that they did before that was Jack and Daxter, which was a yeah. platformer, primarily. Yeah. So that's where so some of that DNA right. lies and that stuff. And you can feel it. Just, like, the, yeah. the general just movements of, like, climbing around in that environment is so fun and rewarding. Like, I like the Crystal Dynamics Tomb Raider games a lot, and I think Uncharted 1 is more fluid than even that, just in terms of movement. Yeah. And that's pretty impressive. So, where it falls down, I mean, the shooting in Uncharted 1 is awful. Yeah. And there's, like, there's really no excuses you can make for it. It's not awful in the way that makes me want to turn off the game or dislike it. It's kind of, And it's not even awful in a way that makes me angry. I think it's kind of funny, if anything else. But it's like, oh yeah, we were still figuring out third-person combat in 2007. Yeah. And I assume it gets better. It gets a lot better with Uncharted 2 and Uncharted 3. Like, yeah. I still have my issues with it. I still think, like, in those games, it's still too floaty and needs a bit more of, like, the impact that something like Gears has, or certainly, like, The Last of Us has in the combat, but it's it's much better. Like, it's 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 good. Like, it's not yeah. amazing, but, it, like, it's not something you have to slog through the way that you did in Charter. Well, and the biggest problem with Drake's Fortune is the pace of, like, you are just facing a room of endless enemies, like, every five minutes, yeah. and it needs to cool down and, like, let you just do puzzles or something a little bit more often, and I, I don't know, maybe 2 and 3 do that more. Yeah, know, there, there's but... a lot more puzzle solving okay. in two, and especially three, if I remember correctly, has a lot of puzzle stuff in it. Just something to break up the pace, like yeah. even if it's just because it's just it's basically the same thing every time. There's a room, there's a bunch of cover. You I shoot. mean, they they get much better at that in terms of in the later games because Uncharted One is all basically set on that island, and in the later games they're like it's a little bit it's not entirely like a globe trotting adventure, but it has more of that. Like you get to a, go to a lot more diverse locations and have really like interesting different set pieces that yeah. make that pace a lot more exciting. Yeah, so I mean you can definitely feel Naughty Dog was getting their feet for something like this because obviously going from a Jack and Daxter to an Uncharted is a huge shift yeah. in what you're doing. It would be like if they suddenly came out with 
I don't know, a JRPG next time yeah. or something. Like, they're just really switching genres. But, I mean, it's so impressive. It holds up so well. And if you're a fan of these games, that Nathan Drake collection is worth every penny because it's it's like The Last of Us Remastered. If you like yeah. the game, you're going to like it even more now because they've put such a polish on it. It's not just a port. It's a, it's much better than that. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad that you're playing those games. Because like I told you then, yes. all the way the, the, the years ago or whatever... These games are fucking made for you. And if, like, you're enjoying... Because, like, I had... Like, I think my issues with Uncharted were, like, hurt me more than they are hurting you. So I think, like, you're probably going to love, like, Uncharted 2 tremendously. Because that game, like, it's a massive step up from Uncharted 1, in my opinion. And I also like that they're short and I can just plow through them. Yeah, yeah. That they're not, like, 30-hour, super-long games. Yeah. Because I'm still uh, plowing my way through Majora's Mask on 3DS, and I love that game. I should not have marathoned two Zelda games in a row. Yeah. Because Zelda games are intentionally repetitive, and on their own, that's a good thing. Because it creates a structure that is really smart. But if you do it back-to-back, it can be a little... I don't know. Tiresome. And I love Majora's Mask, though. I probably... It's just on a pure level, I'm enjoying it even more than Ocarina of Time. But... Yeah, so glad to play that. I also wanted to say, mention really quick, because your PS4 is on over there, so I keep yes. seeing the logo. I got the Final Fantasy VII port for PS4, because I'm going to fucking play that game. And I, I wanted to play that version, because I started seeing videos, and I'm like, oh, they really did a number on that. So i yeah. got to get that. So it was, um, you know, they had that on that sale for like 10 bucks. And if you like Final Fantasy VII, that version is totally worth it. They've given it, an, it's basically the PC port. Yeah. And if you compare that to like the PS1 version or the PS1 classic version you get on PS3 and Vita, it's such a such an upgrade. It's just like the polygon texture and stuff, where it's not like they redid the game or anything, but it just makes it a little easier to see, especially on things like text, which is so important for that game, where it's just clean now and it runs a little faster. And then there's little cheats you can do to make to do different things with it if you want, and that's there. Um, so that's nice. It also came with a theme for the PS4 that is so fucking awesome. It plays Eris theme, which is cool. Uh, yeah. But even better, it changes all the menu stuff on the PS4 to the Final Fantasy VII sounds of like those yeah. little like squeaky sounds that go around, and I love that. I just think it's fun. Yeah, that's something where because I had the Metal Gear Solid Five theme on my PS4 when I was playing Metal Gear Solid Five, and I really liked it because I liked the menu me- noises in Metal Gear Solid Five, and it had those. But then Metal Gear Solid Five hurt me so much that then. I couldn't use the theme anymore, and it like made me even more resentful towards the game because it's like yeah, yeah. I really liked the like I thought because I really liked the Witcher themes that I have that like because you get so many free themes on the PS4 if you like pre-order or, like preload stuff that like I just have like five different Witcher three themes that I got for free and they're all visually really cool but I don't like the the menu noises that they put on it it's like God damn it like God damn it I yeah. I want like the perfect theme Yep I know. I wish you could almost like custom build them. Yeah. Anyway, but yeah, I, I was away for the P- from the PS4 for most of 2015, so I'm back, and it's because I've been looking at 2016, and pretty much every exclusive I want to play anywhere is on PS4. So, like, I feel like that's the year that system is maybe going to come into its own at, in terms of exclusives, because it's been yeah. a lot quieter so far on that front than yeah. uh, than the Xbox One, which is fine. But like, you know, for instance, the Uncharted Nathan Drake collection exists because they had to delay Uncharted 4. Yeah. Stuff like that. So. Yeah, well, there's that, there's, I mean, Persona 5, obviously. Yes. Things like that. It's going to be an exciting year. Uh, and maybe the Final Fantasy VII Remaster, which, that's the first piece of news on our docket. All right. Shenanigans. Yeah. I, I call shenanigans. Final Fantasy VII will be an episodic-esque game. It, it will be a series released in multiple parts, I believe, is the exact phrasing they use. So either we're getting, like, a straight episodic thing, which, gun to my head, 
or we're getting like the Hobbit trilogy version where they take the tight Final Fantasy VII and do like the 200 hour version of it. I mean, calling Final Fantasy VII tight is maybe a little bit generous okay, considering it's, it's like a 100 hour long JRPG. But it's like 60, but yeah. Well, depending on like if you do all the side sure, stuff sure, and, sure, and get yeah. your like special summons and weapons and all that shit. Yeah. But I just wonder yeah. like... Why is that? Why? I just just make the fucking Here's game why, it. Jonathan. Because one, Final Fantasy VII is an extremely difficult game to remake, just in terms of yeah. like making using modern assets and what is expected from a modern video game visually and interactively, compared to when you are using JPEG backgrounds right. and like low poly models on the PS One. Final Fantasy VII has a huge number of incredibly unique set pieces and environments and explorable areas and does not yeah. reuse assets continuously the way that games like The Witcher 3 or something now, the reason why those games are open world is because it allows you to reuse your assets. And Final Fantasy VII originally didn't have that. And so if you're going to make remake Final Fantasy VII and actually properly remake it and not just do like what the PC release is, like you have to figure out something. You either have to cut that game down a lot or you have to do what they decided to do, which is release it into multiple parts that makes a financial justification for it because now you potentially can make much more money from it because it's multiple products that people hopefully will buy. And then also it allows you to have a much more expanded development time than like as opposed to like right now you wouldn't like get like you're just like complete Final Fantasy VII remake until something like 2023 or like 2025 or something for as long as it would take them to just develop that game and nobody is going to sign out uh, sign out for a development time that that's that is that long with no sort of like gain in between so it's a, it's it's something where when I saw this news like I had this huge sigh of relief because I was like okay this is reality like this is like, finally, we are learning what Final Fantasy VII Remake is actually going to be. And at some point, there had to be a compromise in making this game. And I feel like this is the compromise I would have them rather make than to try to push out a much more reduced version of the game and have it be a single release. Okay. That's my perspective on it. No, you just sold me on it. Yeah. No, good points. Yeah. Because I think cause there, was a huge, there was a huge backlash to the announcement, and I understand the backlash. Because it wasn't contextualized well. It, yeah, they, they, the way they announced it, which is something that happens a lot with Japanese developers, is that they do not announce it in a, particularly well, especially for like the Western audience, and they don't message it appropriately. But it is like... It is something where it's like, this is, in my opinion, like from a practical point of view, the best way that they could go about it, and I yeah. agree with the way they're going about it. As opposed to like... Because it's very easy to look at it as just like, well, like, just make the, it was like you just made the game in like 1998 or whatever. Like, just make the game now. Like, just make it and make it better and make it really shiny and cool and awesome. It's like, well, like, all art is defined by the compromises that you make in making it a reality. It's like, this is one of those, like, hard compromises that you just have to make in order to make this game. No, and it's something that I've always kind of loved about the original Final Fantasy VII is the scope of it. Yeah. And just. Before you even get onto the world map, the amount of locations you go to and things you do, and that's cool. But yeah, any one of those one JPEGs in the background could be a lot of development time, as you say. Yeah, like making that a fully explorable 3D open yes. environment. Like that's like the the requirements for that are so astronomically huge compared to what they were yeah. in the original game. Yeah. So no, you, good points, and I. I hadn't been thinking of it that way, so it's good. I mean, I, I wasn't even sure whether or not to be completely frustrated. It was just something where they announced it, and, like, and I just had this sigh of, like, this just seems complicated. But no, I get what you're saying. So, 
Yeah, I, I am curious about how they're going to do it. Like, they've said each one will have, like, the size of a regular game, so does that mean each one will be 60 bucks? Yeah, we'll so see. that's the stuff that'll be interesting to see what they do. Is it all going to be downloadable, or is it going to be a retail thing, each one? Is it going to be a trilogy, and they do it, like, easy like that, or is it going to be even more? It'll be interesting to see what they do. Yeah, yeah. Because you could just go straight discs one, two, three from the original. Yeah, exactly. Because people are used to those breaks. But yeah. So, definitely interested. And I'm... Glad that on the PS4 we'll be able to have that PC port and the upcoming remake sitting yeah. next to each other. And it's like, good, we have like a good definitive version of what Final Fantasy VII was and always will be. And then this, which is really, even remake is like underselling what they're doing. It's a different game based on Final Fantasy VII. Yeah, which is, I think, the far more interesting way to go about it. Yeah. And I think you're exactly right that it's like, it would be a lot more of a sort of like tricky proposition for them like remaking Final Fantasy VII and like not using the active time battle system and like releasing it in multiple parts and doing like having voice acting and all this stuff that maybe changes some things that people would like about the original that they don't want to be changed if they did not have that original on the PS4 but the fact that it's like hey like there is a really good version of this game that you can play either on the PS4 or on the PC that's like that is out there for posterity you can always go back to that and have your like nostalgia goggles ruined for you if you want them to and then also now we can like we can make the game that we want to make that is inspired by this game we made back then and reinterpreting that game we made back then for what that game can be now. Yeah. So cool. All right. So that's some pieces of news. Let's see what else we got. All right. Trailers, movie trailers, all over the place and stuff. So the first one is going to go sequentially through this week because all, all right. through up to today there were yeah. a shit ton of movie trailers and I think it's kind of they're fun ones to talk about. So the first one was X Men Apocalypse. Another trailer just came out of nowhere. I don't yeah. know where the, how they're timing these things, but that's next summer's X-Men movie. Did this one sneak up on you, too? Like, it feels like yeah. we just... I know Days of Future Past was technically, like, two years ago now, but it feels like... Uh, didn't we just do this? Yeah, it does feel like it was just yesterday in a yeah. weird way. Yeah. So I think it was... That was summer 2014, I guess. So it'll be a two-year gap, which is fine. It's totally normal. But, yeah. like, yeah. Um, Maybe it's because, like, we've gotten used to X-Men movies having a longer gap between them. Yeah. Yeah. This is the first time they really seem to be like, okay, we did a good one, let's do that again right now and strike while the iron's hot instead of let's fuck it up. Yeah, because like after First Class, I felt like there was not any sort of direct indication that it's like, okay, we're absolutely going to get another X-Men movie really soon. Like that was like something was like, maybe they'll adapt to Days of Future Past or maybe there'll be X-Men Second Class. Unfortunately, it seems like that ship has sailed for that fantastic title opportunity. Yes, so... But we are getting, I guess, the second class in this movie because they're interesting. We're getting the actual first class right. in this movie, I think you mean. In this weird-ass continuity, they're yeah. the second for some reason. But we're getting uh, Jean Grey and Cyclops and all the original people in there. Um, Jean Grey played by Sophie Turner from Game of Thrones. So Game of Thrones people absolutely everywhere these days. Uh, what did you think of the Apocalypse trailer? I thought it was good. Like, I, there wasn't... It didn't necessarily wow me in any way, but it also didn't... I didn't think the movie looked bad. Yeah. It just, like, it felt like... There wasn't anything about the trailer that maybe like really shown out to me as being something really like remarkable, but there, yeah, I, I thought it looked good. I'm interested in it for sure. I'm definitely interested in it, and what interests me most is that they're what they're pitching in that trailer is a movie on a scale that if they actually do it, will be bigger than any other superhero movie yeah. of this guy, you know, the apocalypse villain who's really just like bringing the world down and all these big disasters, the kind of stuff you really should be able to do in X Men, and the idea of the team dynamics and that many different powers, it feels like could be really cool to explore on this scale. 
and I'm wondering how they're going to wimp out in the actual yeah. movie because they're not really going to do like half the world getting destroyed. They're not really going to do the disaster movie version. Maybe they will. I don't know. But it's it feels like, like that would make the X Men continuity so much more confusing. Yes. Well, it already is because no matter what, if any of those things that happened in the trailer happened in the movie, you would assume Patrick Stewart or Ian McKellen would bring it up in the original movie. Yeah, that it's like this would be a very like serious, significant like that would be like at the beginning of X Men One when you have like all the senators arguing about like mutant stuff. Like that would be like the number one thing is like remember when that blue guy who kind of looks like the villain from the first Power Rangers movie like destroyed half the world. Like, maybe we should be careful about mutants. And maybe he would have a more sympathetic position then. Or just that it's implied pretty clearly in X-Men 1 that Jean Grey and Cyclops and everyone have experience being superheroes, but this is their first big at-bat. And it's clearly not anymore. So, I mean, look, you can't try to think about those things. They they really just should have been two different continuities. None of this makes sense. It's fine, whatever. But it is weird. Uh, But yeah, so... I do wonder, because it's like with Age of Ultron, obviously the scale they were promising in those trailers is probably something we couldn't have expected, but Age of Ultron turned out to be Weekend of Ultron, and pretty harmless in the end, and nothing really happened in that movie. And I hope X-Men Apocalypse doesn't go down that same route. But I do wonder with, if they're really leaning on any of the actual prequel stuff, if if they have to couch it somehow. And who knows, it's possible Brian Singer doesn't give a shit because he also brought back Professor X without explaining how he's alive in yeah. the last one. So maybe he doesn't care about continuity, and I'm actually okay with that because, you know what, comic books don't either a lot of the yeah, time. Yeah, that it's like, if you're going to complain about continuity in a comic book movie or in comic books in general, like you're focusing on the wrong thing. And it's a fun, it's a funny discussion to have, and I'm happy to have it. But yeah, you definitely have to like move past it at some point and recognize the movie on its own merits. Yeah, and... I really liked Oscar Isaac in this trailer. He's playing Apocalypse, so really you're just hearing his voice. But I thought he's doing great. And between this and Star Wars, where he is playing the greatest named Star Wars character ever of Poe Dameron, uh, he's he's clearly going to be exploding over these next couple years. And I love Oscar Isaac. He's a great actor who hasn't been anything like huge on like the mainstream scale before. You might know him from things like Inside Lewin Davis, um, where he's fantastic in that movie. But... So it's kind of interesting to see him as a comic book villain here. Maybe at the end of Star Wars Episode Seven, Poe Dameron like crash lands on ancient Earth, and yes. he becomes a mutant because of like cosmic radiation or something he passed through, and so he does become Apocalypse. Because I will say that is the one thing that was really satisfying about the trailer, especially like in juxtaposition with Batman v Superman, is that like that the Apocalypse stuff is a pretty well defined. X-Men storyline and it's one of like the very few X-Men storylines that I actually like have read and really enjoy because I haven't read a lot of X-Men comics and so like the fact that compared to Batman v Superman that looks like it just is like shitting all over the Doomsday character that they revealed at the end of that trailer this looks like it's like yes that is Apocalypse and he has the four horsemen of the Apocalypse and there's Archangel and it's like and this is what he is and he's like the world's first mutant and all this shit and it's like yes this is like what this character and that storyline is and it's a really great idea, and it's an idea that I think would work really well for the movie. So I'm happy that it, all indications are that they're sort of like keeping the basics of the comic book background there because I think it's a great story. And did you have the same reaction that I had with this and the Days of Future Past trailers, where as soon as Jennifer Lawrence showed up, I'm like, oh yeah, she's still in these. Yeah, <laughs> right. And it's like, and having to was like, who did, okay, yeah, there she plays Mystique. She doesn't even go blue in this trailer. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of amazing they haven't let her out of that contract because she pretty clearly doesn't want to be there, and I get it. And it also doesn't feel like 
Mystique necessarily needs to be there all the time. It feels no. like she's just sort of ridden in there because they have Jennifer Lawrence there. Yeah, obviously. I mean, I think she's used pretty well in, in First Class, and that was yeah. before she became sure. Jennifer Lawrence World Superstar. But in the in Days of Future Past, her role is expanded to the point it is completely because she's the biggest star in that movie. And so I wonder what they'll do in Apocalypse. But I know this is her last one contractually, and then she's gone, so we'll see what they do. Maybe they just kill Mystique. And, <laughs> really just, and, it's just, and you just walk out of the movie, it's like, God damn it, like, I know I shouldn't focus on the continuity thing, but now you're just, like, shoving it in my face, Brad Singer, you fucking asshole. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, I, and I love Jennifer Lawrence. I'm, yeah, if anything, I'm really on good actress. Yeah, and I'm on her side in this. I totally get like, oh fuck, I signed up for this X Men thing, and then I got the biggest franchise in the world, and now I don't want to be doing mainstream movies like this. Oh yeah. fuck! <laughs> it's like I don't need the money. This is a huge. I have to wear blue paint. All, yeah, that yeah. makeup must be like a hellish process to go through all the time. Yes. So anyway, I get it. But uh, yeah, so that's the X Men Apocalypse trailer. Then we had the trailer for the new Godzilla movie. Yes, Shin Godzilla. And it's more a teaser than a trailer. More a teaser. And I should say, when I say new Godzilla, not like new American Godzilla. No, this is actual Toho Japanese Gojira. Yes, yes. And that I know that makes you excited. Yes, the more Godzilla is always a good thing. And I think most... The main thing that needs to be remembered about this movie is that it's being directed by Hideaki Anno, who's the he's the Evangelion guy, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Yeah. For the people who don't know what that is, it's like one of the most famous anime series. It's like this insane, super dark deconstruction of mecha anime that's like has like really grotesque designs and stuff, and it's it's a good. It's a good pick for Godzilla. Yes. Just to like go in a very different direction with Godzilla, which is seems like what this is going to be. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the trailer really is just a little tiny tease. You don't see Godzilla. You don't you really... Hear, you hear him, though. Oh, yeah. You hear the proper Godzilla. Like, like fucking the original, like, 1954 Godzilla, Roar Godzilla. Yes. So, do you think he'll still be in a suit? I hope so. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I, that's that's what I would do if I was making the movie. Absolutely. You got I th- And that, I think that's what Hideaki Anno would do. Yes. I if I know too. the cut of that man's jib, I think he would be <laughs> all in for the rubber suit. Yes. So, rubber suits all the way. All right, just wanted to mention that. It Hopefully there's more on that soon, and I hope that actually gets some kind of distribution deal here. Yeah. So we see it, because that's always spotty with Japanese Godzilla movies. But everyone loves Godzilla now. Yeah. It's yeah. been over ten years now since Final War, so the yes. last Godzilla movie, so... Yeah, because Toho is actually a company that knows when to quit for a little while and then come back. Yeah, it's, it's, it's something that... It's like it's baked into Godzilla's. Like you have like your little eras. It's like, and every once in a while, you, you take like a ten year break or so. It's like let let it calm down. Then you let the big G come back. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Now we have the trailer that makes me laugh the hardest, which is the other day they just again randomly dropped the trailer for Independence Day yes. Resurgence, which is a and the biggest takeaway from this for me is they actually made it. Yeah. I had been hearing rumblings for years about they're doing Independence Day 2, and I've always been like, why? And everyone else has been like, why? And then yeah. the trailer drops, like, oh, they actually shot the damn thing. And it's got a title that sounds like a terrible video game spinoff. It does sound like it would be like like the PS1 Independence yes. Day video game or something would be called Independence Day Resurgence. Yeah. Um, I mean, it looks stupid. It's got Jeff Goldblum, but whatever. He's... Pay Jeff Goldblum enough, he'll be in anything. I mean, it was something where, like, when I saw Jeff Goldblum in the trailer, it was like, I just had flashbacks to Jurassic Park 2 yeah. of, like, 
you know, where, because it's a very similar situation where Jeff Goldblum is a, like, very memorable supporting character in Jurassic Park and in Independence Day. Maybe he's a little bit more than this. I mean, every character's a fucking supporting character in those fucking Roland Emmerich movies. They yeah. never focus on any one character enough to, like, make you actually care about them. But yeah, like, he's a really memorable supporting character in both of those movies. And then somehow he is like seems to be becomes the leading man then for the sequel that they couldn't get any of the other original cast really to come back for yeah. maybe a couple of the other people but it's like it's so just like why why is it always Jeff Goldblum I mean I love Jeff Goldblum I love don't him get too, me wrong, but... but it's like it's a weird parallel well and it's the thing is he is inherently a great supporting actor and I yeah. don't mean that as any knock against him that is a incredible skill set but you look at his work, and he is best as a supporting actor. If you put him in the lead of something, it doesn't usually work, because that's just not the mode he's best in. Yeah, I mean, the main exception to that, I would say, is The Fly, David Cronin's okay. The Fly, where he's the lead. But then also, like, he plays a very sort of, like, quirky, strange character in it. And it's, yeah. like, it's a Cronenberg movie, so all, like, rules are off for a Cronenberg movie in terms of, like, who you cast and how you cast them. Right, absolutely. He's made, like, three movies with Robert Pattinson now, so yeah. these things happen. Anyway, um, so yeah, I mean... I have no love whatsoever for Independence Day. I saw it as a kid, and it made no impression yeah. on me. And if that's a movie that doesn't make an impression on you as a kid, you're not going to go back and love it as an adult. It's a bad Roland Emmerich movie, whatever. And I just, like, I had an argument with someone, not even an argument, like a, like a you know, friendly argument with someone on yes. Twitter where they said, you know, it's like, that trailer makes no sense, but it's going to be a huge hit. And I'm like, no, I don't think it is. I think it's going to flop really hard because it's 20 years past the original it's a movie that I doubt anyone under the age of 20 has seen. That's just, there's no way it has the capital yeah. it would need. And it doesn't look distinctive in any way. We've seen a million movies like this since that came out. And your big star in it is Jeff Goldblum, who the main market for this movie doesn't know. If, if it had Will Smith in it, if they had gotten him back, I think it would be a hit. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. Because, you know, like Men in Black 3 was after 15 years and they managed to make some money with that. So maybe. But no, it's... It's kind of bomb hard. There's, is there anything in that trailer that's remotely interesting? I mean, I, I will say that, like, at least they're going a more interesting direction with it where, like, the humans... And who knows, like, how like how this will actually manifest in the movie. But I did like the shot of, like, the human technology interfaced with the alien technology and, like, them adapting it. I think that's an interesting idea. I don't think that, that they're going to, like, exploit it to it in an interesting way in the movie. I think it's just going to be, like... It's just going to be explosions and, like, buildings falling down because that's what all those movies kind of are at some point. Yeah. But, yeah, like, I thought that idea was interesting, and I like seeing, like, instinctively, I just enjoy the act of looking at Jeff Goldblum. <laughs> so, like, those two things appeal to me. But, yeah, I, I'm completely with you that, like, I watched Independence Day as a kid. I've probably seen Independence Day twice or maybe three times because it felt like back, like, in, like, the 90s and early 2000s it was on TV constantly. But, like, I have no particular fondness or memory of it. But there is a section of people on the internet that, like, I, I thought for a very long time had an ironic enthusiasm for Independence Day. That now I think, like, is, like, a legitimate, like, inexplicable enthusiasm for Independence Day. And, like, a real love and joy for that movie that I don't understand. Because yeah. I don't think <clears throat> it has, like, a campy, cheesy heart to it that is fun and I think it's like a very clinical feeling movie to me. That's it's like, a it's very cold. movie. It's very sterile. There's like the characters aren't memorable or interesting or fun, and the set pieces are because the characters aren't interesting, memorable, or fun. Like the set pieces are devoid of any sort of emotional attachment to them. And it's like you blew up a model of the White House. Like, oh no! Like I don't really care. 
that's like you need to like in- invest something into it, like put some character into it to get me to actually care. And I feel like he has never done that in any of the movies that I've seen. I I don't know. I mean, we've also, though, learned many, many times that weird sections of the internet do not equate to box office success. Yes. So, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, no, there's definitely a corner of the internet that loves Independence Day. I don't get it. I also think, you just, like, you hear the Bill Pullman speech going over this trailer, and I'm thinking, wow, that was a different era for the United States. Yeah, exactly. Like, that sort of mindless patriotism is not and should not be a thing anymore. Probably yeah. should never have been a thing, but I understood it in the context of the 90s. Year 2016? No. We've got yeah. bigger fish to fry than that. Yeah, yeah, you're definitely right about that. It's like... Because, yeah, it, it feels like it's something from a bygone era. Yeah. It's very strange. It's also going to be the heat of election season when that comes out and all that. I mean, we're going to be six months away from a... Maybe maybe now is the time that we just straight up elect Bill Pullman. He comes out of nowhere as an independent party, just sweeps it. Yeah. Who knows? Well, anyway, that's a weird trailer. Yeah. Um, it's weird that they're making that movie all around. Just, yeah, so bizarre. I don't get it at all. Especially because Roland Emmerich's last few movies have flopped, if I'm not mistaken. Like, White House Down, which I actually saw for review, which is, that's a bad movie. That didn't make money. I don't think his 10,000 BC movie did well. Oh, fuck, right? He did, made that. Did 2012? I don't know. I I feel like... Oh, wait, no, I was mistaken 2012, the day after tomorrow. I don't okay. know how I possibly did that. I don't know how I replaced one of his movies with another movie. But... Yeah. I mean, you could literally just release the same movie in theaters with a slightly different cut and trailer, and I don't think anyone would notice. Yeah. So, anyway. All right, so let's go ahead and move on to the next trailer, which... This one, at least, there's a reason for it dropping. Star Trek Beyond, the next Star Trek film, uh, the trailer will be showing in front of Star Wars this weekend. And That's I guess, weird. I guess they wanted to put it online, like, maybe it was in a leak. So anyway, sure. it made sense it came out this week. But Star Trek Beyond... It's got a better title than Star Trek Into Darkness. Still not a great title, but better than Into Darkness, and that's an achievement. Yeah. It's been so long since I thought about the title Star Trek Into Darkness that I forgot how bad of a title it actually is. Like, it became more of a concept than actual words to me at some point. But yes, no, you were, you're right. Star Trek Into Darkness was the fucking awful title. And I still wish they would have gone with my suggestion for the next Star Trek movie title, which is adapted from the first Hobbit movie and called it An Unexpected Star Trek. Yeah. That would have been great. And it would have fit. It's That's like Star Trek Beyond. It's just, it's an unexpected Star Trek. That's yeah. better. Anyway, Star Trek Beyond is the first one in this series not directed by J.J. Abrams. It's directed by Justin Lin, who did Fast and Furious 4, 5, and 6. So his action credentials are beyond reproach. That guy knows what he's doing. Will he make a good Star Trek movie? I don't know. And after watching this trailer, I have no idea. That trailer... Yeah had left me so conflicted in so many ways because it shows you nothing about the plot or anything. Now that you told me that that is the Fast and Furious guy, that trailer makes so much more fucking sense <laughs> to me because I had no idea that that was the case. And, like, I thought I saw the words Fast and Furious flash at the end of that trailer, but it moves through, like, Gene Roddenberry and, like, all those people's names, like, in, like, half of a second that, like, I think, like, if you even tried to, like, stop the frames on YouTube and pause it, you couldn't fucking catch the frames with the names on them. It's like, I had no idea that's what it was. That trailer is... Okay, that's why that trailer is like that. I understand now. I mean, they're pitching it very much as a big action spectacle kind of yeah. thing. And it's got the Sabotage Beastie Boys song, which is a specific reference to the first J.J. from Star Trek, where Kirk is playing that as a kid. Um, yeah, but it's that was a strange... Strange choice. It's yeah, just stylistically for to like the pacing of your Star Trek movie trailer. It's like It makes you think it's like... 
how where has this franchise gone now like this is what we're doing is that's the trailer for the new star trek the first trailer like the opening salvo for the marketing of the new star trek movie is to the song sabotage by the beastie boys it's bizarre it's not even bad it's just bizarre to me it's like i don't have any distaste for it necessarily yeah but like what it is for me is like i don't like star trek in the darkness at all I especially the more I think about it, the more I really dislike what that movie did, and I think it is one of the best examples of taking a franchise and going in the complete opposite direction of everything that franchise stands for. And I think from what I've heard about the plot, like Star Trek Beyond was being written by Kurtzman and Orky again, and they're those hack writers who did Star Trek in the Darkness and things like Amazing Spider-Man Two and lots of uh. other bad movies, and they were fired. And uh, Simon Pegg actually wrote the last draft of Star Trek Beyond. Mm-hmm. And maybe a writing partner. And Simon Pegg has his nerd credentials. He yeah. knows what he's doing. If anyone can write a good Star Trek movie, it might be him because he's a smart, clever guy. Yeah. And and knows Star Trek. And it looks like just from the trailer, it looks like the plot is something like they're out on their five-year mission, they encounter an alien planet, and they have an adventure there. And if you can do that and have some kind of cerebral hook to it that Star Trek should have, and it's a story of exploration... And you can have all the action on top of it. I'm fine with that. Modernizing Star Trek is fine. I think the first J.J. Abrams movie did it really well. um, With a couple hiccups here and there. But I think it mostly got the tone and everything just right. And then... So I hope Star Trek Beyond has that. It's just that this trailer, as a teaser, just shows the action and, like, mayhem side of it. And I don't have anything to, like, hang on that. Because that's not what Star Trek is. Yeah. So... it can And it can be both. That's all I'm saying. Is that you can have a really good story and then have some action on top. But yeah, and you could very easily have like a much more, like you said, like more cerebral version of, this, of that sort of Star Trek movie that still has the action and still cut a trailer of that movie that, that is, is just... like this trailer that is like with sabotage, sabotage by the Beastie Boys and just like action cut, action cut, action cut, action cut, and that's like the whole trailer. Because I will say, what the fuck is this? Because I will say this: I like the visuals in the trailer a ton. You yeah. kind of have to fucking like freeze frame to see them. Yeah. But I think the cinematography is great, and I think it looks a little more interesting to me than some of the stuff in, especially that second J.J. Abrams movie, where J.J. Abrams' visual ticks could get a little, I don't obnoxious. know, obnoxious. And I, it looks like with Star Wars, he's evolved a little bit from the trailers we've seen, which is fun, which is nice. Um, but so I like that, and I like the look of the aliens. I like that they're not CGI. It's yeah. dudes in makeup. I think they look interesting. They are not, to my knowledge, Star Trek villains we've seen before. So I like all of that. And again, the fun- fundamentals could be there for a good Star Trek movie. This is just a very bizarre trailer. It's for all the people who don't know what Star Trek is. It's yeah, not for sure. me or the millions of other people who like Star Trek. Yeah, it's just like, it is something where like I watched that trailer and I was like, what the fuck did I just is this actually the trailer for the movie or is this someone is this like a trailer that a Star Trek fan made like making fun of these movies because they resent how action oriented they became this is like at some point it's really hard to tell if it's a parody or not because it's like it's so those Fast and Furious movie style trailers which makes perfect sense for those movies in no way makes sense to Star Trek for me yeah I mean the other thing about Justin Lin is he's a smart guy he really got his start in more independent cinema and I know his first couple like independent movies before Fast and Furious are very acclaimed. And so I have no doubt that he can mix both sides of that. But again, this trailer is... Because it, 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 the card that comes through in the middle is Justin Lin, director of Fast and Furious. And I get why you would pitch that, but it feels like they did do the Fast and Furious thing to Star Trek, which unintentionally does feel like parody, as you say. Yeah. 
Like, I watched it twice, and both times I'm like, I'm just confused by it. The trailer makes no sense. Yeah. The only part of the trailer that I really liked is just, like, Carl Urban as Bones, and every time he's I see him, he's so good. And well, they don't was, use him enough in those movies. Well, he was he's barely used at all in Into Darkness. Yeah. And I thought he was used pretty well in the first one. The first one is more about the Spock Kirk thing, which I yeah. get. At some point, someone there has to realize that it was never Spock Kirk in the original. It was Spock Kirk and, and McCoy. McCoy. Yeah. And you have to have the trio. And there is, at least in that trailer, a clip of McCoy and Spock alone together. Yeah. So maybe we'll get that. Yeah. Because I don't think that happens in the other two. I, yeah, I think you're right. I don't think so either. But anyway, yeah. So we will see. Uh, definitely going to be a weird thing to watch before Star Wars 7 this weekend. Yeah. <laughs> like, can you... like? Obviously, I have some of my issues with how they've marketed this Star Wars movie, but at least they didn't do this. Like, can you imagine <laughs> if the world where instead of, like, these very sort of, like, sanctified, holy, like, sacred versions of Star Wars trailers that we got that are, like, so insanely reverent to the subject material that it's almost sort of, like, depressing in a way, that we got, like, this just, like... Yo, motherfucker! Boom, 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 like super fast cuts. It's just like okay. fucking Han Solo jumping off of the building, Falcon and blowing up behind him, and like I, some stupid joke like being said at the end of the trailer. I may have to see if I can get all the Force Awakens footage together and cut that. Yeah. Because that would be so funny to do the Star Wars Force Awakens version of that with, yeah, Kylo Ren pulling out his red lightsaber yeah. to the sabotage song. That would be like the last shot yeah. on this. Yeah, it'd be great. Alright, if I don't do it, it's one of our listeners. One of you has made an AMV before, do it. Yeah. Come on. Anyway, so let's go ahead and move on. I think that's everything, so... Alright. Alright. Uh, well, that was a good segue. Yeah. If that's, that was everything. I thought there was one more thing, but I was wrong. We talked about it at the top of the show. My outline was out of order. Oh, great. You yeah. ruined my amazing segue, then, that I didn't even make intentionally. Alright, I'm sorry. Um, Star Wars. Star Wars. Yeah. Star Wars. I feel like we should just cut the podcast there, and just that's it. I, no, we need to have this conversation. No, we do. Yes. Uh, so yes, let's go ahead. As we know, Star Wars Seven coming out this weekend. A big shift in eras because I think yeah. one of the cool things about Star Wars, maybe you know, the, to me the coolest thing is that it belongs to everyone. It is this franchise that knows no bounds in terms of I feel like age or demographic. Yeah. Um, and every time it kind of gets resurrected, it belongs to a new generation. And it doesn't even have to be resurrected for that. People just discover the original movies and now the prequels and at one point the sequel trilogy and stuff on their own. And so there's constantly new fans coming in and the movies aren't old enough yet that that first generation is gone. So everyone, that's why Star Wars 7 has the hype it has. is yeah. Because literally everyone is excited for it. Everyone has seen these movies and loves them. Um, and so I think it's kind of, you know, if nothing else, it's going to be cool to see when this starts up again this Friday that we have basically another generation that's going to come on and another generation starting up. But before then, it's good to maybe look back at our generation because we come from a weird in-between time yeah. where we weren't young enough when the prequels came out that that was our introduction. Yeah. Um, because it's really people maybe five to ten years younger than us that I would say that was their introduction to everything. Yes. Um, but we also aren't old enough that, like, we saw... One or four, five, and six in theaters. Oh, yeah, definitely. Not. Yeah, so it's the kind of thing where we discovered them on VHS and that sort of thing. Um, so we still are in that like the original trilogy is was our introduction. Yeah, like the primary frame point from which yes. I understand Star Wars is definitely the original trilogy. Yeah, but we also there. did see the prequels when we were kids. So I also don't think we have the extreme vitriol towards those. No, yeah. that a lot of people do, and I think that voice doesn't get a lot of attention. So. 
that's just a starting point. But Sean, I wanted to throw it to you. How right. are you introduced to Star Wars? What do those like fundamental memories mean to you? What was Star Wars when you discovered it? Oh man, I mean, it's something where Star Wars is so big to me. I mean, it, it's something where, I mean, we talk about Doctor Who and Persona a lot on these podcasts because it's something that like comes up more now, and it's something that like both of us have like like taken up later in life. And so, like, maybe people don't realize that, like, you know, I obviously, neither of us, like, we never grew up with Doctor Who. Like, I used to watch Doctor Who in high school, and so that's how I got into it. And, like, I played Persona, like, four for the first time, like, what, like, three years ago or something like that. And it's like, that's, so it's like, it's not like something I've been a lifelong fan of those things that people, like, if they've been listening to this podcast for a while, may think that that's our perspective on those things. It's just, like, they're really great things that are being, like, developed, and new stuff is coming out for them now, so it's very relevant to keep on talking about them. But Star Wars is, for me, like, like when I was a kid, I had, like, Star Wars, Lord of the Rings, and Spider-Man were, like, my three main things of, like, like sort of popular culture that I really, like, grafted onto and gravitated to and just loved to no end, like, like way before me getting introduced to Doctor Who and that kind of stuff. And so Star Wars is, like, such a fundamental part of my life. That, like, it's hard to, like, I can no way remember when I did not know what Star Wars was. Or, like, was not excited about Star Wars being Star Wars. Like, I can't remember a time that I did not know that Darth Vader was Luke Skywalker's father. Because it's, like, it's such an ingrained part of me. Because I, like, I definitely know I watched the original movies. At least four and five. I don't know if I watched Return of the Jedi. I probably did before Phantom Menace came out. And I saw that in theaters. And I saw all the prequel trilogies movies in theaters obviously but with that like i also like i ate up star wars video games i read a lot of star wars comic books i read star wars novels like i actually over thanksgiving break when i was at home like i was like looking through some of my books to send to my brother who has moved to new york because he wanted some books and he wanted to get into reading because he's never read a lot so i was just sort of like looking at what i had and i did not realize how many star wars novels i have actually read like i have read maybe like two dozen star wars novels and like that's a lot not even realize it because like a lot of them are, are a lot shorter like the like like sort of not quite children's I guess you would call them young adult novels because, like, that's not a meaningful categorization anymore that actually, like, relates to what those, like, young adult as a status actually means. But it's, like, that sort of, like, maybe Harry Potter class novel, but, like, not that long, more like 200 pages. And I read a bunch of those that were, like, the adventures of Jason and Jaina Solo and Anakin, or Ben Skywalker, who's, like, Luke and, and Han and Leia's and, like, all their, their, their children and stuff and their adventures in the New Jedi Order and all that stuff. Like, I read a bunch of those novels, and I remembered reading them. I just didn't remember how many of those I had read, and then I read a bunch of stuff, like, other, like, really interesting Star Wars novels, like the Thrawn stuff that I've come back to later. And so, yeah, like, Star Wars for me is so huge. I think it's just, it's such a creative, fascinating, wonderful universe that was created that, like, obviously, like, George Lucas sort of had the spark, and that original, that original movie created that spark. But the franchise very quickly... And from my perspective, instantaneously, because obviously we came to it later, like, has a much bigger life to it for me than those movies. And those movies are obviously the kernel and, like, the core of what they are. But, like, that sort of, like, expanded fiction and that, that fan base and that community and all that, like, the creativity and the love and joy and the analysis and criticism and reconstruction and deconstruction of what Star Wars is, means, and can be, 
Like, that is what Star Wars is, and it is that universe, and it is those discussions, and it's Knights of the Old Republic, and it's Knights of the Old Republic 2, and how different those games are, and how different their perspective on the on the series is, and it's like Kyle Katarn in the Jedi Outcast games, and it's the New Jedi Order novels that I read as a kid, and it's like the novels set in between episodes 3 and 4 that like are from Darth Vader's perspective, they give you a completely new view on that character, and it's Star Wars The Clone Wars, that, that cartoon, both of those cartoons, the old Tartakovsky one, that came out between episodes two and three and the, the, the longer CG one. That's fantastic. And it's star Wars rebels now. And it's like, it's all those things. And that's what star Wars is to me. And it's has such a much more massive life than, than just those movies. And see, this is one of the reasons I love doing this podcast is because while Sean and I have similar interests clearly on this podcast, we come to things often from different directions Yeah, because that is not my experience with star Wars at all. And it's kind of fascinating. And I like having your perspective on it. Because it's not mine. It's a weird yeah. thing where I've really only been exposed to the movies, and that's all I know Star Wars as. And when you compare it to like your base of knowledge, that sounds really small. But those six movies still wind up having a huge influence on how I watched movies growing up and yeah. look at movies. And that's true for a lot of people, obviously. Because most people who know Star Wars have not seen more than the movies, probably. Uh, even though there is that whole other world out there, and it's yeah. big to a lot of people. So I just think that's funny, because I've, I've even had this told to me a couple of times recently, where people are like, you must be super excited for that new Star Wars, because you love Star Wars so much and all these things. And I don't consider myself a big Star Wars fan. Because what fan to me means is like something like what you're talking about, where it really is something where you're interested in more than just the surface, maybe. Yeah. And you get into it on a deeper level, and it becomes a more, you know, sustaining kind of thing. I really like the Star Wars movies. I think Star Wars Episode Four is as close to perfect as a movie can be. I think Empire Strikes Back is as close to perfect as a sequel can be. And I like parts of Return of the Jedi very much. Yes, yeah. <laughs> and then I, uh, you know, and I have a lot of fondness for different things in the prequels. And I think I respect so immensely the like world George Lucas created yeah. and what he started that I will never understand the unrepentant hatred people have for him which makes no fucking sense yeah. there are definitely mistakes he has made and there are certain things he is obstinate about that I think are actively harmful to his own creation and just to film history and things like like that a movie as big as Star Wars is difficult to see in its theatrical version from a film history standpoint is maddening you yeah, know, from an archival standpoint, is maddening. Those sorts of things. But he also made the damn thing, so you don't get to have the argument without him. Yeah. You know? And I love that he has also been as open as he is to allow Star Wars to become what it has become, where most of what is branded as Star Wars, he had nothing to do with, other yeah. than saying, you have my blessing, go. You know? And that's cool. But yeah, I mean, Star Wars for me was... I originally saw the 97 special editions. I didn't catch the theatrical run, but I know my first VHS tapes of Star Wars were those 97 special editions. And watched those a lot as a kid, really liked them. Um, And, you know, then saw Phantom Menace, Attack of the Clones, and Revenge of the Sith in theaters. And I very much remember those. Because as you say, like, with those original three Star Wars movies, it's tough to remember when you first saw them. Like, I can't pinpoint... The screening conditions. I don't remember where I was when I saw A New Hope or where I was when I learned Vader was Luke's father or any yeah. of that. I don't remember the moment at which that was still surprising. I do very vividly remember seeing the prequels still. Like, yeah, those are still yeah, such vivid like viewing memories for me, and maybe we'll get into that later. Um, but yeah, it's definitely for me as just a, I guess as a film critic and things like that, 
they've been movies to me first and foremost. So I like my favorite Star Wars memory of seeing those is I was I uh, I think it was after the summer of sixth grade. It, well, yes, it was. It was the summer after sixth grade. So before I was about to go into middle school. So this is just before we would have met each other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I went on a trip with to Chicago with my mom. And I didn't have a lot to do there. We were at, like, my aunt and uncle's house. And so I would just kind of hang out in their basement a lot because they had a TV. And I found they had some Star Wars tapes. And it was, like, the widescreen 97 special editions. And I'd never seen those movies in widescreen before, I don't think. Or, like, you know, in, in that kind of form. Yeah. So, and I hadn't seen them in a couple years, even. Um, because at that point, the prequels would have come out. But So I had kind of gone through the whole prequel cycle. And I hadn't maybe watched the originals in a while. And I remember just putting those in kind of fresh... And watching all three of those again and falling in love with them. And those will still always be my favorite screenings of those movies. Because for some reason, even though I had seen them many times before and would see them many times again, there was something about that viewing of like coming to it after the prequels and all of that kind of chaos had kind of calmed down. And they were just movies again, you know, that I was discovering for the first time. And I realized, like, I just kind of fell in love with the characters again. And that's kind of the thing I have to do with Star Wars is I don't rewatch those movies much. I feel like I have to come to them feeling relatively fresh or else because they are so much about discovery and about kind of the fantasy element of this universe like I think yeah. they're great I don't know why people call them sci-fi they're not they're fantasy and they're great fantasy because genre definitions are never like precise and the public never has a good handle on no. on it and it's never going to be something that the public can ever have a good handle on yeah but I, they don't scream sci-fi to me like in any way they are such great fantasy stories and there's something about that that I love coming back to and being away from it long enough that maybe there's moments I've forgotten or something. Yeah. So, anyway, I guess that's my opening spiel. But that's kind of the difference. It's mostly, for me, it's just the movies and stuff. And for you, it's a much more lifelong obsession. Obsession is maybe a cool no, way to put it. Sorry, I don't mean obsession. I mean something that you're really enthusiastic yeah. for. Like, like, I haven't read every Star Wars comic or no. every... I, have, I am nowhere near that level. Like, I am, like, not... An insane Star Wars fan, but I'm definitely like a far more committed Star Wars fan than yeah. the average person who's just seen the movies. Like, I realized when Battlefront came out, and people were talking about Battlefront 1 and 2, and that PS4 bundle came out that had all those other games that people were talking about now because yeah. they had come out. I've played maybe two Star Wars games. I mean, I've played the Lego Star Wars ones, and I've played okay. Super Super Star Wars, and I think that's it. I mean, that's I. That's weird. And I just. It's done something I never did. I never really played Star Wars games. It's like, I have probably played more Star Wars games than I can actually remember how many Star Wars games I've actually played. Like, that's probably yeah. at the point I'm at. Like, I played a lot of fucking. I played a lot of bad Star Wars games, and I played a lot of amazing Star Wars games. But. Yeah, and it's weird. I mean, it's a thing for me. Like, I never feel the need to play a game of some, of some like, other media franchise I'm interested in. Like, I don't think I've ever really played a Lord of the Rings game to completion or anything like that either. Uh, and those were big at the same time. Those Star Wars games from the yeah. early 2000s were big. But yeah, I uh, may, you know, and who knows? Maybe there's something else that I'm forgetting about. Oh, okay. My little brother had a PC game called Jar Jar's Journey. I have not I played, played that. that. I can confidently say I've never played that game. I played Jar Jar's Journey on the PC. <laughs> yeah, that's. Do you do you remember what that game was like? Like what's this, no? You... I remember I remember the cover because it's like Jar Jar with his, uh, you know, his tongue sticking out and smiling. And that kind of thing. But no, I do not remember what the game was like. I'm bringing up a YouTube video right now because I want to see this. Yeah. Let's play Jar Jar's Journey. So what was this game like? It's a Lucas Lucas Learning game. Okay, it looks like it was an educational game with really awful graphics. Where, like, you played games... Like, we're looking at one right now. It's memory, it looks like. It's a memory game with young Anakin and unfinished C-3PO. There's a game where you draw a Jar Jar. Yeah, it was... Okay, I played a lot of these kind of PC games as a kid because... We had more PC stuff than game consoles, honestly, back then. 
and it was like so there's here's a maze it was if you are you probably played this this is not a game market that exists anymore at all but yeah, when the, the edutainment games yeah the edutainment games and those pc games that would like uh, kids pc games don't come out anymore uh, Minecraft maybe, but yeah, like I, I, I played some Math Blaster when I was yeah. a kid. That's how I learned to multiply and divide was by playing Math Blaster because it was my brother's copy of it, and so obviously my brother's four years older than me, so he was like into far more advanced math than I was when I first played it. But like Math Blaster looked really it had a good visual design to it. Like it probably looks like shit, and I'm just like romanticizing it in my memory. But I just thought it, like it looked really cool and had a good laser sound effect. So I like forced myself to learn how to multiply and divide to play that game. Nice. It's entertainment. It's real. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, so that's Jar Jar's journey. There, that's that's my main Star Wars memories, Jar Jar stuff. I mean, I did have some... We're, I'm, I'm wondering how we're going to structure this discussion, because I yeah. do want to get into some of the prequel stuff now, because honestly, yeah. those are my strongest memories of Star Wars as a kid, is all the prequel stuff, because I did have prequel-related toys and things. Yeah, I had a, I had a Darth Maul lightsaber that I adored, and nice. then I had, it broke at some point, and I have no idea where it is. It's always... A, it's, there's a hole still left deep in my heart of like, because that lightsaber toy was so fucking cool. Yeah, my brother had one of those and it broke too. I don't think they were very durable. No, yeah. Uh, I don't mean I. We probably abused them heavily as kids. It's like they were not very durable, but they're also like you're making a like plastic tube that is replicated after a thing in a movie where you use it to hit things. It's like that's not going to last very long in like an eight year old boy's hands. Like it's just like. You know, it's like it's, there's a reason why it used to be just sticks and you didn't buy toys for stuff like that. You just would hit sticks and have like fake sword fights. Because if you break a stick, you can just go find another fucking stick. You break it like a Darth Maul lightsaber toy, it's like, well, shit, that's the money down the drain. I'm never going to convince my parents to get another one of these. I mean, and that's the thing that I've, I've been trying to figure out how I wanted to phrase this, but like, Star Wars is so much more a memory to me than it is an ongoing part of my life because now that I'm, th- the more I think about it, Star Wars was a huge part of my childhood in that I had, like, lightsaber toys and stuff, and my brother and I would, like, play Star Wars and stuff, and friends yeah. and I would play Star Wars on the playground all the time. Yes. And especially during those years of 99 to 2005, when Star Wars was kind of everywhere because of the prequel trilogy, it was a really big deal to me. But that's why, like, when I watched Phantom Menace again the other day, it was like, okay, even the parts of this movie I really do love, and there are parts of Phantom Menace I think are absolutely great. Yeah. And there are parts that are absolutely terrible. But there are parts that are absolutely great. Yes. And I just... I, it's hard for me to access those anymore because it all exists in some part of nostalgia that is so far distant to me. It really is a memory sort of thing. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is cool that Star Wars has that effect. And that, like current kids who are like you know 20 years younger than me are having that same experience is nuts. Most franchises yeah. do not do that. Yeah, no, definitely I mean, not. no other franchise has that kind of infinite reach. Um, but yeah, so... Definitely. That's that's kind of my opening thesis, I guess. But yeah. All right. So where do you want to go from here? I don't know. Um, I mean, I feel like maybe we'll loop back around to some of the original trilogy stuff, but I feel like clearly we want to talk about the prequel era. Yeah. Because that was the thing. And, I mean, do you remember your reaction when you saw Phantom Menace in the theater? I mean, I really liked it. Like, yeah. I definitely, like, I don't, I didn't, I didn't, like, I, like, when I was that young, I didn't think about movies, like, critically in any way like and I was like like young kids tend to not but I read much more and I watched a lot of like cartoons and like like my life was more focused on those so it's like I don't remember having a strong critical reaction to 
episode one or episode two when they came out. Like, episode three was definitely, like, far enough away that it was like, okay. Like, I had seen, like, The Godfather and stuff like that at that point and had, like, started to develop a critical understanding of movies and, like, a, like, more academic interest in movies and could think about them that way. But, like, episode one, if I'm remembering correctly, is definitely the movie I've seen the most in movie theaters. I probably saw it, like, between five and seven times in theaters. Not just, like, me wanting to go see it, but then also, like, probably, like, every single kid that year had a birthday party like around that time it was like okay the birthday parties are going to go to the movie theater and see phantom minutes like i have no idea how many times i saw phantom minutes in the theater as a result of a like a birthday party taking place it was it was a a common phenomena yeah i think my record for movie in a theater is still the first harry potter because that year it was the same kind of thing i know i saw it at, at least one or two celebration birthday party kind of things uh, and I think I saw that movie like six times. None of my friends had Harry Potter birthday parties, and I was very grateful for that. All right, anyway. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I saw Phantom Menace. I, there's no way I could count. It was definitely a lot. It was more than two or three times. Yeah. And I just, like, I remember that being such an all-consuming experience because even with The Force Awakens, the world has changed enough that marketing can never be as pervasive as it was, like, in a 1999. Yeah. And so I just remember seeing Phantom Menace stuff fucking everywhere like all the taco bell and mcdonald's and every other fast food promotion so you would have like every cup in the world had fucking queen amidala or jar jar on it or something i remember all of that um and i remember like part of it for me was that my dad like really liked phantom menace and liked watching it with us and I, i think it was because it's the kind of thing where if you're a parent watching it with or for your kids you look at a movie differently yeah definitely. and so it's this great movie because i do think phantom menace in some ways is a great kids movie because no, yeah it, definitely it is it has a really good effect on kids and that's yeah. and i don't think it's like a completely pandering effect in the way like alvin and the chipmunks the squeakwool is or something yeah it's much savvier than that um, because somehow it both has like a really fantastic effect on kids and has Jar Jar Binks in it and like the most like sort of ridiculous cartoonish character that Star Wars at least the main Star Wars stuff has and at the same time it is like this ruthless deconstruction of like how democracy devolves into tyranny and fascism and yes. it's like that is actually the backbone of the prequel trilogies like that is if you watch those movies that is the it's not particularly well exploited or thematically used but it is definitely there like it is about this this republic, this de- democratic republic that has gotten old and large and has fallen into stagnation, and how that then that stagnation is exploited to create fascism in a very like Hitler Nazi like National Socialist Party kind of way. And it's like that is what those prequels are about, and somehow they still have a great effect on children. Yes. And especially Phantom Menace, because I think it's easy for kids to get a little bored by Attack of the Clones and maybe a little scared by Revenge of the Sith, because that's a dark fucking movie. Yeah. But Phantom Menace does kind of hit that right sweet spot. So like, I just remember, and I think everyone has this, where their parent would encourage certain things in movies like that they really liked. And so I remember that through my dad, who really liked the Gungan High like president character. Yeah, the guy uh... who goes, brrr, that kind of thing. Whatever his name is. Boss, Boss Nass. Nass. Boss Nass, yeah. yeah. I was going to say Boss Nassa, and it's like, it's not Nassa. Yeah, Boss Nass. Boss Nass. Well, because you would always say Balsa Nass, that kind yeah. of thing. And so we really liked them. We, we all kind of liked Jar Jar, and, you know, he thought Queen Amidala was cool with the, like, crazy makeup and yeah. stuff. And, uh, we, and, of course, we all liked then, uh, still like him now, Qui-Gon Jinn and Obi-Wan. Yeah. Still perfect. Perfect. Yeah. And... But then, like... I don't know, for me, the showstopper, and, the, like, the by far the most vivid memory I have of episode one 
is sitting in the theater and watching the Darth Maul fight at the end. Yeah. Like, that's just, like, holy fucking shit. Like, especially as a kid. And, like, compared to the original trilogy, that, like, I've come to, like, heavily respect the sword fight scenes in the original trilogy, particularly in Prior Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. They're a little bit sort of limp in New Hope. But, like... I like I like the pace and the style of them in the in the latter two original trilogy movies, but compared to that, like just the spectacle and the grandeur of that, and the, just like the elaborate choreography of the the Darth Maul fight, and really like most of the lightsaber fights of the prequel trilogy, where you get to see like Jedi in their prime fighting a Sith Lord, like like that sort of like the power fantasy yes. aspect of it, and like the Force being like I don't want to say the force being unleashed because that's just like a marketing term for that Star Wars game that came out but like that's what it was like of like you've always had like the effects were are a bit cheesy in the original trilogy films of like it's clearly like when Darth Vader is like throwing the sh- that shit at Luke using the force at the end of Empire like it's obviously stuff on strings like being thrown at Mark Hamill the actor like there's the, it's hard to look past some of those effects but then when you, like, then you get to the Phantom Menace and it's, like, the way that, like, you know, they're jumping super high and running really fast and force-pushing each other across rooms and, 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 like, just the kinetic energy of that stuff is so palpable in those scenes and really, like, exploits that power fantasy of the Jedi that is sort of promised by the original trilogy but not actually executed upon particularly well. It's, like, it's that stuff of, like, when fucking Darth Maul, like, throws off the cloak and, like, turns on his lightsaber then turns on the other side of it and you're, like shit's about to get real. Like, oh. that's that movie to me in so many ways. And that is one of those things that has never diluted a drop. I yeah. mean, that scene is still great. I think one of the things the prequels don't get enough credit for is just how visually interesting they are. Yeah. Like, I get they overuse CGI and all that, blah, 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 I've heard it. They are also just as design and world building yes. kind of beyond reproach. And I mean, I think if you look at, for instance, the like climax to Empire, George Lucas had a lot of those sensibilities already, but there's just a limit to how much you could do with it in that setting and that time. But then you look at like, the climax of Phantom Menace, that room they are fighting in with all those platforms and the lights and the colors yeah. is so cool. It is so cool. And it's one of the things where... Like, if you watch Phantom Menace now, unfortunately, if you see it digitally or on Blu-ray, they have ruined that movie. They did this, like, digital DNR scrub on it, and it made it look very waxy. They took out all the grain, because that was the last Star Wars film shot on film. Yeah. Well, I guess Force Awakens was, but of the George Lucas ones. And they tried to make it look more like those, so some of the visuals in that movie have been kind of marred to me. But if you go back to, like, maybe if you find a DVD, that film just has such a cool look to a lot of it. And um, just the general design, and it definitely climaxes in that Darth Darth Maul fight. Which is the best action scene, I think, in any of the Star Wars movies. Yeah. It is so cool. It is so fun. And I think there's a general, genuine emotional heft to it because Qui-Gon and Obi-Wan are genuinely well-drawn as characters. Yeah. And as partners. And it's fucking sad to see Qui-Gon die, but at the same time it's such a noble death because it's like, who, what better opponent to die to than Darth fucking Maul? Yeah, like, it's like the first Sith Lord to be seen by a Jedi in like a thousand years or whatever, like all that's, yeah. and like, and it's also like, like I'm just thinking about the moment, because I haven't watched the prequel stuff, Rewatched it in a pretty long time now. So it's like I'm just going on my vivid memories of like specific moments, but it's like there's also that like incredible moment that's like just like sums up so much of the philosophy behind the Jedi and the Sith, where it's when the, the like the laser wall, the red laser walls come up in that fight, and uh, Qui Gon and Obi Wan are separated, and Darth Maul's on one side, and Qui Gon's on the other, and Qui Gon just like gets down and is meditating, and Darth Maul's just like pacing back and forth like a panther, and like just waiting 
for the walls to come down and like the tension of that scene and it's like how what how that just defines who Qui-Gon Jinn is as a character and like the world and philosophy he comes from and then Darth who Darth Maul is as a character and the world and philosophy he comes from and how obviously these two people must be opposed to one another and like like it's just like it's a fantastic visual sort of like metaphor for those characters. I just love all the stuff of how the Jedi are fleshed out yeah. in the prequels. And like when I was rewatching Phantom Menace recently, because I've been studying, I've been for my thesis, I actually wrote a lot on Buddhism and Eastern you know religions, and I've been getting into that myself. And I love how much George Lucas draws on that for the Jedi. And I'm I wasn't fully cognizant of that until recently. But even as a kid, it all had an impact on me. Where you respect and love the Jedi not because they're just badass but because they also have this calm and intelligence to them and that's very much there in the original trilogy with Yoda and with where Luke goes as a character but I love seeing the entire civilization built on yeah. that and and also the conflict there where some of the Jedi aren't fully living that you know that, that Qui-Gon is kind of correctly calling them on some of their hypocrisy in Phantom Menace yeah. that was all dynamic and interesting as a kid and I think it continues to be as an adult and I like some of that yeah, stuff. Yeah, there's, there's like a philosophical and a political element to the prequels that, again, like, they're not ex- utilized to the extent that they could and should have been. And like, But that stuff has been, like, in other stuff like the Clone Wars cartoon, used magnificently. But in those movies, there's a political and philosophical component to them that is, like, by design, not present in the original trilogy. And it serves as a very fascinating companion piece to that of, like actually fleshing out the world and like really getting into like what are the politics of the star wars universe like in the pre the empire and like what were the jedi order and like where does like darth vader in the empire come from and the emperor come from because like the word sith and like that side of it is never mentioned in the original trilogy like that's not like they never get into that side of it because it's all the like very sort of like abstract mythic storytelling which obviously is fantastic and like beautifully done in those movies and is the right story to tell for those movies but it's the thing that I think is really worthwhile about the prequels and then like the prequel sort of universe that opens up with the expanded stuff afterwards is that it gets into those sort of discussions of like actually like what does it mean to have like these warrior monks with like these powers and like their philosophy and like what does it mean to then have this opposed force that like sort of worships power and like how do those things interact and like how does democracy exist in this world and like how do all these forces actually interact with one another and there are some like dumb sort of bad misguided ideas in there like i think probably like obviously the the big one is like the midichlorians and even beyond the midichlorians it's always the it's the immaculate conception of anakin skywalker is like so stupid to me and pointless and like not in any way relevant to where that character goes, at least in my opinion, is being some, trying to be some sort of like martyr Jesus metaphor. I don't think that plays out particularly well. No. <laughs> yeah, so like that side of it is not great, but there's like some of that stuff I just find so utterly fascinating. And if it weren't for that stuff, we wouldn't have gotten that for, for me, for like my love of Star Wars. I would never have gotten that in everything else. Like I couldn't have Knights of the Old Republic 2 that like really gets in there and just like breaks down the boundaries between the Jedi and the Sith and like what they believe and shows how like they both have these like insane contradictions in their philosophy and then at the same time like those contradictions mean that the Jedi and the Sith are remarkably similar and you can understand why a lot of the people in the galaxy don't necessarily draw a distinction between the two and stuff like that like there's a lot of very interesting philosophical area to explore that the prequels absolutely open up 
Yes, absolutely. And so I think that's why they they call on the imagination so well. Yeah. And I think that's part of why they were so big as a kid. So what other Phantom Menace-related memories do we have? I have... The big thing for me is I had a, the toy I remember most having from the Phantom Menace era is I had this like replica of the Jedi communicator, okay. and it was like it was bigger than the ones they have, and you would like play with the buttons, and each button had a different quote it would say from the movie, and I remember three of them were Jar Jar lines, and whenever any of those lines from that communicator would come up when I'm watching Phantom Menace, I like they have like in, a Pavlovian response. Yes, they're like in my DNA. It's not just that I remember those lines; it's that they are like in me and they like ring some fucking bell in the back of my head and make me remember that weird communicator toy I had that's like whenever I watch uh, Return of the King and Frodo says the line which is that like elvish spell that he uses to light the thing like I like have an insane reaction to that and like remember that because it is like that audio bite is repeated ad nauseum in a specific level of the Return of the King video game (laughs) that's like the worst level in that game you just hear it over and over and over again. And it's like, every time it's like, it's like, shut up, Frodo! I'm coming to save your ass, and I fucking have to just wade through a, like, army of spiders, and it sucks. Fuck you, Frodo. Yes, one of the ones I remember is, when you hit a button, there's, it would, he would go, Misa called Jaja Binks. Gungans no like them outsiders. And those are two separate lines in the movie, and it always mixes me up that they don't come together yeah. in, the, in the film. So anyway. great. Yeah. Anything else with Phantom Menace? And it's just like I'm, I'm again now. I'm just like thinking back to the movie, and yeah, I think the one thing that's really great that I'd just like to expand upon is a lot of the design and stuff of the world and the ships and like Naboo, which is like a very different planet and clearly has its own culture and is not like anything we've ever seen in another Star Wars movie. It's not another desert planet. You know, it's like this is it clearly has its own culture and like the Naboo ships look completely different from any of the other ships and I think they're cool designs and like the Trade Federation ships have this like cool like the big sphere in the middle with like the arms going around it and stuff like that. And then like all the aliens like Sebulba and stuff, I think they have great designs when you go on to Tatooine and you have and the pod race and like all like like all that stuff is so cool and like especially at the time the effects were really impressive and, yeah. and, and engaging, especially for a, a child watching the movie. It's like that a, side of it is just so cool. That's another thing they've sadly fucked up in subsequent releases of Phantom Menace is that the theatrical cut of Phantom Menace is kind of significantly shorter because the pod race is shorter. Hmm. On the DVD and then on the Blu-ray, I think they did it again. They've lengthened the pod race. They added in deleted scenes. And so the pod race goes on for like 20 fucking minutes in the current version of that film. And it's too bad because I remember it being really thrilling as a kid. And I don't remember... I don't even at this point remember what, what is new and what wasn't. But I just know it was added in. And even when I got the DVD as a kid, which was I think one of the first DVDs I ever owned was a Phantom Menace. Because it was one of the early DVDs. Yeah. Um, because I had had it on VHS for a while before then, because it came out on VHS first. And I don't think the VHS made those editions either. I think it wasn't until the DVD. So that was a weird change that slowed the pace of that. Um, and it was one of my early memories of getting, like, weird thoughts of, like, pace stuff. But anyway, um, yeah. It's... But but the fucking sound effects in the pod Oh, it's scene. fucking incredible. Like, when he just, like, turns on... The, the pod race is like... <laughs> like, there is a reason why the sparrows in Destiny sound exactly like the pod racing stuff in Phantom Menace is because the sound design is so fucking good it's incredible yeah Yeah, absolutely incredible god I mean it's 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 a weird thing with Phantom Menace where I have seen it probably twice in the last five years and every time I go back to it it's 
I don't really love or hate that movie. It is just a product of such pure nostalgia to me. Yeah. Like, I have nostalgia for everything about that movie, good or bad. Like, the stupid shit in that movie, even the, like, Jake Lloyd's bad line readings, I I can really dislike that now, but it's also like, but that was something I saw as a kid many times, and I have some kind of enthusiasm for it. And then that really increases on the things I do like in that movie. Um, so it's it's a weird movie for me to watch, because I don't quite have that with two or three. But I really do with one because I was seven years old when that came out. Yeah. I mean, that's that's nostalgia prime right there, you know. Yeah, I mean, it is something where, and it's also something where we're obviously like talking about our fond memories of it, and it's like, I think it's important to sort of like recognize that the prequels have a lot of really good things about yes. them and a lot of interesting things about them that are worthy of discussion, and the way that they just get sort of like panned and dismissed by the larger community, and like the one thing that like just gets on my nerves so much and aggravates me and it's like they do like people do this for a lot of things that they don't like that are like extensions of a franchise that they don't like those extensions but they do this with Star Wars more than anything else is when someone says it's like I wasn't very fond of the Star Wars Episode 1 it's like oh they made Star Wars Episode 1 I didn't know they made another Star Wars movie I thought there was only those original three and just like this like stupid sarcastic feigned ignorance it's like Oh, go fuck yourself. Like, can we not have a conversation about these movies? Are you so just enraged and destroyed that these movies came out that, like, you have to, like, still be doing this joke fucking over 15 years later that it's like, oh, no, the battle, they're bad, so, like, let's just pretend they didn't exist because if bad Star Wars movies, if bad Star Wars movies existed... That would be so terrible. Oh no, my life would be so bad if like these bad Star Wars movies are actual. Like, like let's just keep on telling that joke. I fucking hate that shit so much. I do too. I hate it to a degree where, and this is something I kind of wanted to say later, but might as well say it now. I mean, the negativity around Star Wars did drive me away from Star Wars for a while after the prequels were done. And, you know, I kind of kept on enjoying what I enjoyed about them. But for a while, it's like, I just, I can't even be a part of that because you can't have... There really was a time after those prequels where you yeah. just could not have a single discussion about anything Star Wars related without it going back to that and the George Lucas hate and all of that. And it was toxic. It really yeah. was. And it's just, it's insane at some point. And it's something that I just don't really understand. It's like, this is coming from someone who is a huge Star Wars fan. And I think... Like, especially, we'll talk, like, maybe we'll talk about this a little bit, that I think episode two is a pretty bad movie and is a very boring movie, and I don't like it very much. But, like, that's so fucking what? It's a bad movie. Like, there is so much good and so much bad in Star Wars as a media empire. Yes. Like, why do you give a shit? Like, go, instead of spending your time bitching about episode two, go watch The Clone Wars. Go watch a good Star Wars novel. Go read a good Star Wars comic book. Go play Knights of the Old Republic. Go watch the movies you do like. Like, there's so much, if you want to engage with Star Wars, I guarantee you there's some fantastic piece of Star Wars media that you're just not engaging with because either you don't want to or you're just so fixated on the fucking prequels being bad and you didn't like them that, like, you're just, like, ignoring and denying yourself an aspect of being a Star Wars fan that I just cannot accept in people. Absolutely, I completely agree with that, and I think more than anything else, you've just... One, I don't think the prequels are bad movies. I think they are, like, C-minuses at worst, and, you know, at best, they're, they're much higher than that, and I think, you know, I've seen really bad movies. Amazing Spider-Man 2, these ain't. Yeah, and exactly. I think it's not you, an unmitigated disaster. No, and I like think if you look at... And if you look at the things they do give to fandom and to Star Wars 
as a whole, they are, you know, as you say, very important things. They've opened up a lot of great other media. You wouldn't get something like The Clone Wars, which is this huge, beloved part of Star Wars yeah. now. And also, it's you can't discount how many fans the prequels brought in, yeah. you know? And and we're kind of part of that in that they they didn't bring we didn't start with the prequels but they definitely kept that flame alive for those six years that they were coming out. Well, I like I almost certainly wouldn't be like the degree of Star Wars fan yeah. I am now if it wasn't for the prequels and more importantly like all the stuff that the prequels brought with them and like for me like the it's like it's just something where like my experience with Star Wars is that like the prequel movies whether they're good or they're bad is kind of neither here nor there for me like they're not like. Like, when I think of, like, Obi-Wan and Anakin, like, I think of them in, like, the Clone Wars. Like, I think of them as those characters or, like, as characters in, like, some of the novels I read that were set in that time period. It's like, when I think about the prequels, I think about all the things it gave us of, like, being able to even, like, understand the Jedi and, like, the Jedi Order as an actual thing as opposed to, like, this sort of mythological construct, which is how it exists in the original trilogy. And it's like... The, the Star Wars universe, as represented in the original trilogy, is very fascinating and, like, it's very evocative, but it's there's not a lot of room to actually explore anything there. Like, there's a couple of lines and a couple of hints, and it's like, and that stuff's great, and again, like, it works for those movies and it's fantastic world building for those movies, but if it was just that, like, I don't think I would be able to have the interest in Star Wars that I have. Like, it, like something, again, like Knights of the Old Republic which is one of my absolute favorite video games of all time, could not exist if the prequels didn't lay the groundwork to make, like, the Jedi Order an accessible thing and make the Sith Empire an accessible thing to explore in the Star Wars universe as opposed to them just being, like, abstract concepts in the far background of the the world building. Yeah, absolutely. So, with Attack of the Clones was, you know, three years later. Yeah. And it's kind of funny because... I do think we would both be in agreement Attack of the Clones is the worst of the Star Wars movies. Uh, yeah. And even at the time, like, that's the one I have the least vivid memories of. Because I think I saw it in theaters maybe twice, but, you know, it was like you got out and like, that was good as a kid. But not, like, the crazy enthusiasm I had about Phantom Menace or would later have about Revenge of the Sith. It was just like... Yeah. Because so... I mean, even as a kid, you realize so little happens in Attack of the Clones. Yeah. It is... Such a piecemeal kind of thing that doesn't even make a lot of sense. Like as a kid, I remember having the discussions with my dad of like, who was um, kind of whatever the name of the guy is who orders the clones? What's Sifo Dyas, Jedi Master Sifo Dyas, and no one could figure that shit out. No, because no like, one. of course, because there's no there's no framework through which to understand yeah. who the fuck Sifo Dyas is, is in that movie. Yeah, all of that stuff. Like, who is Count Dooku working for? I don't know. None of it really makes sense. Those sorts of things. There are things I like about Episode Two. Ewan McGregor really came into his own with that one. Yeah. Obi-Wan is awesome throughout that whole movie. And he has, like, the only really good sort of section of that movie, which yeah. is this whole subplot of where he's investigating the clone facility. And even if you don't know who Sifo Diaz is, and, like, some of that mystery stuff is really opaque, like, it's still... It's again, like Jedi Noir. Yeah, but it's, it's again, it's something, like, it gives you a window into something you've never really seen before. Like, you got a little bit in Phantom Menace, and you get it again here of, like, the, a day in the life of a Jedi Knight. And, like... Again, in the original trilogy, you have no idea, like, who the fuck the Jedi were and what they did all the time. Like, they could have just, like, sat around, like, smoking space hookah or something and, like, played around with their laser swords every now and then. Like, you have no idea what the Jedi were. Like, it's this vague mythic construct. And, like, here you see it's like, okay, it's like this interesting sort of, like, intergalactic sort of, like, impartial police force that also has this, like, spiritual religious side to it. But 
like they have this power granted to them from their like spirituality that allows them to sort of like explore these like very dangerous situations you know and then yeah. mediate things peacefully hopefully yeah i like all of that i like some of the action stuff near the end and uh yeah i mean it just did open up the world a little more in some ways we could totally do a big discussion on all the critical failings of episode two because that is the epicenter of it all for me yeah and it's it's just a very slow plotting movie that doesn't do what it needs to do for its characters yeah i mean if episode two had been as good as episode three i think we would look at the whole prequel trilogy differently we would yeah, be like definitely. all right one kind of was flawed but overall, good trilogy. Yeah. You know? Instead, it's now, three's pretty damn good, didn't get a lot of good build-up. You yeah. know? That's kind of how we look at it. But anyway, I mean, what... I don't have a lot of... I mean, I think 2002 is when... So, Attack of the Clones, maybe there were more prequel-related books and games at that point coming out because there had been the time from episode one. Is there anything from that you remember? Or um, I remember having a terrible, terrible Star Wars The Clone Wars game for the Xbox, the original Xbox... Not because I bought it, because it came with my original Xbox. It was like a weird two-pack where it had that on the disc, and then it also had this weird Tetris game that was like a really bad version of Tetris, which is a pretty remarkable thing to be able to make, is a bad version of Tetris. And like, I played that Star Wars Clone Wars game to completion, mostly just out of like pure curiosity at that point, because it was... That's probably actually one of the first bad video games I ever really played and, like, understood it was a really bad video game. Because it was mostly a vehicle combat game, and it was, like, very strange. It, like, was, like, not what you would expect, but you're still playing as Anakin and Obi-Wan. They're just driving around tanks, basically, for the entire game. It's really weird. And every every once in a while you can get out and, and you, like, use your lightsaber and that stuff controlled terribly. It's a really bad game, and I, I should probably find out where it is. I'm sure I have it at home. It'd be interesting to play that again. But yeah, I had that, and, like, I mean, I think I read some comic books. This was also, like, right after the Clone Wars, or the Attack of the Clones, was when the Jindy Tartakovsky Clone Wars cartoon, which were, like, these five-minute shorts that played on Cartoon Network, that came out, and that, like, defines a lot of... Because, again, like, his Attack of the Clones is weird, because it's, like, you know, you're, it's just, like that movie ends with the beginning of the clone wars and like but all the interesting stuff about that section of like star wars sort of like history basically is the clone wars and not really the lead up to it that's oh, like, it'll, it's always the weirdest thing about the prequel trilogy is it elides the most important part of its story yeah it's always been bizarre but it's also then like a weird saving grace because then it just hands it off to sort of like more yes. capable storytellers that are in a better format to tell those stories with like tv and stuff there's like that was also when the original Star Wars Battlefront came out was between episode two and three and then that was a lot of fun but like I think like like thinking about to like to do what we did with episode one and sort of like cherry pick out the things that we liked about episode two Count Dooku I think is really fucking cool I mean because that was like that lightsaber it's awesome yeah and it's like you know I am not a huge fan at least like from the marketing materials who knows how they'll use it in the movie but like that cross guard hilt lightsaber for, for episode seven I just think is a stupid looking design, but if you go to like episode two, I like the the, the follow up of the very flashy like double sided lightsaber that Darth Maul had it was like this very elegant like sort of almost like fencer rapier like thing with the curved lightsaber hilt that kind of Count Dooku had, and then of course like Christopher Lee like brings so much sort of like panache and style to the role and has that fantastic voice that like even if you have like the characters introduced in a very strange way that you don't. Like you, do you, I felt like 
my impression of him is that you have no idea how important of a character he's supposed to be. Like, that they don't introduce him properly as, like, oh, this is the main villain of the movie. But, he, like, he only really comes in at the very end as that. But you do have that scene where he walks in and Obi-Wan is, like, like tied up and, like, like, magnetically suspended or whatever. And he's just sort of talking to him and taunting him and trying to sort of persuade him to come to the dark side. That scene's fantastic. Like, it is. That's great. I totally remember as a kid after Attack of the Clones came out I wanted desperately a Count Dooku toy lightsaber but it was a really it was a much more expensive one yeah. and I never got it and I just remember that as like one of the disappointments of my young life that I had like my Qui-Gon green lightsaber and I never got a Count Dooku one because I thought it was so cool I remember looking at that like in a target yeah wanting that. <laughs> that yeah so that was really great like again the Obi-Wan detective stuff and I also I, I think a lot of that stuff of the opening of the movie where they're sent to protect Padme and then that like assassin working for Django tries to sh- shoot her with a dart or whatever yeah. and like they're like jumping from the cars and like again it's like a side of the Star Wars universe you've never really seen before and you're on Coruscant like that seems really fucking cool and exciting yep. and even if like you know it's also coupled with a lot of like the you Anakin know, stuff yeah you realizing oh god this is where they're going with the Anakin character like still it's like you get Obi-Wan. I mean, there's, and there's... Now that I'm actually thinking about it, like, episode two does have a lot of really good small moments. Like, you have... And, like, weird side characters. Like, you have that Dexter Jet Love guy. That scene. Who's the bartender guy that Obi-Wan goes to. Again, it's like that... It's the Obi-Wan subplot's the best part. Just, like, just everything about that scene and, like, the, that character's design and the... I should... We should find out oh, who plays they, that character. One of the best scenes in the movie is Obi-Wan goes to visit Yoda and the younglings. Yeah. And Yoda gives him that advice with, like, the star ceiling thing. That's brilliant. Yeah. That's a beautiful scene. And I, like I, a great use of Yoda there. Yes. Then And then also, like, this is the first time you got, like, Samuel Jackson as Mace Windu gets to do something and you get the revelation of a purple lightsaber is a thing that can exist. Which, like, as a massive Star Wars fan at that age, that fucking blew my mind because you never saw that. It was like, there were blue lightsabers, there were green lightsabers, and there were red lightsabers. And that was, like, the canon as established by the original trilogy. Those are the three lightsaber colors you had. And, like... You never really questioned that, and that continued through episode one. Then fucking Samuel Jackson walks out, pulls out his fucking lightsaber, turns it on, and it's fucking purple. That's fucking cool. It's like, very cool. It's a really good stylish trick. And then also, like, his fight with Django at the end is cool. But, like, specifically, there's, I think, a great shot where it's after he goes, you know, Mace Windu decapitates Django Fett and his, like, helmeted head, like, falls to the ground. And then in the aftermath later... Like, little kid Boba Fett goes and, like, is picking it up. Like, there's a really iconic shot there that even, that, like, has stuck with me, even if I don't think that whole subplot is amazing. Like, there's something about that that's, like... Because even, I think at that age, I never made the connection that that, that Boba Fett... I didn't really know who Boba Fett was because I was never fascinated by that. I was always... I, and I still am way more into the Jedi side of Star Wars. So, like, I never made that connection at the time that that's who that was supposed to be was the bounty hunter dude from the original trilogy. Yeah. But there's just I I don't know. I like I have that like image of that shot in the film like ingrained in my head. Yes. It's a good one. Yeah, um and I remember Natalie Port I I don't want to be crude. Natalie Portman is really hot in that movie. Yeah. And no. as a ten year old yes, yeah, that no. was a thing. That was yeah, totally like, a... I think it's something that needs to be like put on the board yeah. and addressed. And it's like I think the movie is aware of it in a weird because in that last scene, she... like she gets like the midriff of her costume yeah. like ripped off. By the Neku, Nexu creature, I think is what it's called. Yeah, yeah, I mean, look, a lot of people who were our age in 1983 have stories about Carrie Fisher and the slave Leia bikini. Yeah, that that, that was our slave Leia, which is a weird yes. thing to say. 
Yeah, especially if you didn't have the appropriate context for it. But like, it, it yeah. is like, yeah, I'm yeah. with you on that. Yeah. So anyway, like literally, literally, I mean, Padme in that movie is one of my first movie crushes. I just yeah, I would, I would yeah. probably it's probably more or less the same for me. Yeah, yeah. But then, like, moving to a less awkward section. Yeah. And I actually, I want your opinion on this because we've never talked about this. I feel like it's a very controversial thing about this movie. Yoda at the end of the movie in the lightsaber fight. Do you have a strong opinion one way or another if that was a good thing to do or a bad thing to do? I thought it was awesome as a kid. Yeah. It was the thing that made the biggest impression on me the first time I saw it. I do think, as an adult, when I look at that scene, I think it's well choreographed. I think it's well animated. I think it sells Yoda as a CGI creation. I think intellectually I would prefer they did something else with Yoda there because I think the potential for what they didn't do and maybe finding some other way Yoda could fight is more interesting to me. But I don't object to it like Yoda should never have done that. Because I believe Yoda could. I just think there might be a more interesting direction with just Jedi culture and who Yoda is and I don't fully envision him being the guy who would do that. But uh, it's it's got that visceral effect. Yeah. It is awesome. It's I'm I'm way into it. Like okay. I'm I'm a big proponent of Yoda fucking when when push comes to shove, I like that Yoda can throw down. Yeah. Because I think because that is because I kind of look at it the other way that it like reveals to me that like that is part of what it means to be a Jedi is that like when push comes to shove that you're someone who can throw down and like you're someone who throws down for the right reason like you're fighting for what you believe is a just cause but like training to be a Jedi and becoming a Jedi means that you're training to be able to kill people you just don't want to have to and like you yeah. like because it's, it's tied into a lot of that sort of like samurai bushido ethics and stuff like that that like I think it's I understand the desire for like Yoda to remain like the the like astute philosopher type character and like the very wise old like with yeah. man that like belies like the true wisdom behind him with with this mischievous exterior and stuff like that but I think there is something fundamental about like you realizing that Yoda's not actually that special like he's a really cool character and he's he's a great Jedi but he's a Jedi and no, like and I... that there is not necessarily that like great boundary between him and everyone else that like and when Yoda fights like I, I think it's like it's a really clever interesting idea of that like that's how he fights and that like he he's an old man but at the same time he's got that sort of like it's a very anime thing of having your like like the like Master Roshi type character this like very like ancient martial arts master that's like walking around with a cane and is very decrepit but when like time it's time to happen you feel find out like oh this guy's actually made of solid muscle because he's been training his entire life as a warrior monk and that's what it means to be this person no and I, I do I've always leaned on the side of liking it more than not liking it just with that in the back of my head in part because fandom gets in your brain yeah but no I think you make a convincing argument and I've always liked it too in episode 3 especially when yeah. he fights the emperor yeah it's a good but, fight but I do think the best thing about because that scene in episode 2 always like I intellectually in the back of my head when I'm not watching episode 2 I feel something like it's not perfect but then you watch the movie and I think Attack of the Clones has a lot of pacing issues yeah but in terms of how it paces out Yoda's appearances up to that final scene and that whole last section which I actually think is really good yeah and you get into that and fucking Obi-Wan's gotten his ass kicked Anakin got his fucking arm cut off yeah. our heroes are down for the count and Count Dooku's won and who comes in it's Yoda and he is angry and he draws his lightsaber and you didn't even know he fucking had a lightsaber yeah, exactly. because he never uses it and yeah and he, he goes and like jumps and he's flipping yes. all over the place it's pretty fucking cool yeah. yeah and then that you have that in your back pocket for when shit gets really real in episode 3 
and that he can come very close to even beating the Emperor, but not quite. And I like that fight in Episode 3 because it uses the Force stuff more. Yeah. It's the lightsaber side of it, but also the Force side of it, and I think it's a good balance. Yeah. But for what it is in Episode 2, it's pretty great, yeah. Yeah. All right. I'm glad that we can come down on pro-Yoda kicking ass. Yeah. Definitely. And... You know, it's kind of the thing where for the first couple of appearances, you're like, oh, why'd they switch to a CG model? The puppet could have done this. And then it's, nope, puppet couldn't do that. Yeah. <laughs> that would be a really funny version of that scene, yeah. trying to do it with a puppet on, like, strings or something. <laughs> Marionette Yoda. Yeah. yeah. No, but anyway. Yeah, so that's episode two. Now, I definitely have strong memories about episode three. Yes. Now, this is a lot more recent, 2005. Yeah. It's only ten years ago. It's 13. I was in sixth grade, I think, or something like that. I don't... I think it would be later than that. I think it was like maybe. I feel like we knew each other by the time episode three came out. No, and I here's the thing. I have very vivid memories. It was either fifth or sixth grade for me. Huh. It was. I thought it was later than that. I thought it was middle school. Maybe no, not. It was, it was 2005. So what did it come out in 2005? I could be wrong on the date. I'm gonna look that up. But uh, right. either way, I remember this very vividly because I'm gonna tell a story that is not flattering to me. Okay. But, I'm excited now. Okay. But it was 2005. But it was May 2005, so it must have been 6th grade. Okay. okay. Because we would have gone into sure. middle school as 13. Because we would have been 12 when it came out, if that was May, and then we would have turned 13 during the fall in 7th grade. Okay. Okay. So that's I'll accept that. Yes. Because, here's the thing. This, 2004 is the year I started working as a film critic, quote-unquote full-time kid. That's not the thing. But yeah. like that became my role with the Colorado Kids, and I started going to press screening. So I saw episode 3 early. Ah. Uh, and that was a huge deal at the time because obviously sixth grade, everyone in my class was excited for episode three because we all loved Star Wars. We loved the prequels. This was the big final one. We wanted to know what was going to happen. We're going to see Darth Vader. All this stuff. This was like this is the movie. Like I remember there being more hype for this than episode one, even though I know historically there was more for episode one. Yeah. But just in like kid culture, I think it was episode three. And I had a friend in sixth grade who like loved Star Wars more than anyone. And he was so fucking jealous of me getting to see that movie early. And we had this paper we had to do on... We were each given an animal we had to write about. Okay. And, um... Yeah, so we were each given an animal we had to write about. And I really hated my sixth grade teacher and sixth grade as a whole. And I was really done with school at that point. Like, elementary school. That was, that and, was in the same place. And so I had to write about the mule deer. <laughs> Not the most entrancing of animals one could... So and you I, didn't get to pick the animal no, like it was a sign no. of you. That's depressing. No. And so I kept kind of pushing it off and didn't want to do it. And finally on the day it was due, I was in the computer lab with this kid who was my friend who liked Star Wars. And I just googled mule deer. Hit, I'm feeling lucky. Cut and paste that page. Put it in a Word document and handed that in. Okay, I, yeah. I full-on plagiarized. It's Knowing great. you... Like, I am not surprised that at that age that is something you would have done. At all. In, like, I'm... Yeah. That that affirms my understanding of you as a human being. And the thing is, it's like... I was... I, I wrote every day at that point. So, like, writing wasn't the thing I was afraid of. I just didn't want to do it. I thought it was yeah. a stupid fucking assignment. So, yeah. And, and this kid caught me doing it. And he was like, oh, I have to, have to tell the teacher all this stuff. I'm like, okay, if you don't tell, I will take you to see Star Wars 3 early. And he said that. And I did not follow through on that either. You're, because I, you're, you're a monster. So I wasn't allowed to do that. But, uh, yeah. So, uh, and, and it should be clear. Like, he did not specifically extort you no, to do with I, this information. You were the one that proposed, no, wait. I got something you need. Yep. Okay. 
Yeah, no, not a flattering story. And uh, it was the teacher's assistant, like it was our student teacher, who graded that stuff. And her comment was, this is really thorough, but the formatting is weird. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, why are some of these like words hyperlinked? And like there's weird bold sections. And like this big gap here that looks like an image would fit. I put so little work. Like, I should have been caught on that. That should not have been hard for me to get caught on that. But I didn't. Yeah, now that like makes me feel like I should have been plagiarizing stuff all the fucking time if they wouldn't. I yeah. guess maybe elementary school they didn't even it didn't maybe it didn't even occur to them that kids would like have the the ingenuity <laughs> to just go on the internet and like copy and paste Wikipedia or whatever yeah. two thousand five Wikipedia was. Yeah, it wasn't even Wikipedia. Yeah, Wikipedia wasn't even a thing probably. But yeah, saw Star Wars episode three early and then bragged about it to the class. So uh, yeah, so that poor kid, I I played with his emotions. That's bad. Yeah. But anyway, one of the things I remember about episode three is okay. that. In between episodes two and three, I got into reading some of the Star Wars books, not to like the degree you are, right. but I remember specifically reading the novelization of Star Wars two, okay. and that's probably why at the time I didn't question the plot of two a lot because I don't remember that book at all, but I'm sure it clarified a bunch of stuff that almost make sense. And then I read the book for episode three actually before episode three came out because it was oh, out early, so I actually knew like the whole story of episode three before I saw the movie, and I remember having some comparison points of like there are things I still remember in that book that I wish were in the movie. Like, they specifically describe when Anakin is on Mustafar, and, like, because he gets there early, and he's, in the book, they go through this whole thing of, like, he was sent there by Darth Sidious yeah. to do a specific job, and he kills all these people, and in the book, when Obi-Wan comes, Anakin is standing on a pile of dead bodies, looking out at the lava. And that is such a great image, I still imagine Hayden Christensen doing that, even though it's not in the movie. So that's just kind of, that's one of my memories of that, is having that book... And like, because obviously those Star Wars novels obviously flesh out the plot a lot. Yeah. And so there's even in Episode Three, there's a lot of things that make way more sense if you've read the the novelization. Um, and I, I remember liking that. In, in fact, I think those are probably good books. Like if you're ever interested, the, all the Star Wars novelizations are pretty high quality. Hmm. Cool. But yeah. Uh, anyway, so yeah, like I have a somewhat similar experience in that before Episode Three came out, the original Lego Star Wars was released, and I rented and played that game, and that has Episodes One, Two. One's two, one, two, and three, and so like I, it's like it's hard to say that I knew the plot of Episode Three by playing it through Lego Star Wars, but I distinctly remember getting to the point where you're on the Mustafar level at the end and being like, oh, okay, so they have to fight on the lava plot because I mean, you know, you, you know how the story's going to go by the time you get to Episode Three of like the pieces that need to be put in the specific places to make episode four the, a reality the other thing i should note is that like if you think star wars marketing means what disney has been doing with it go back and watch those prequel trailers they are fascinating particularly the one for episode three i actually rewatched this last year because my friend robbie who i've mentioned on the podcast huge star wars fan he owns a 35 millimeter print of the episode three trailer and we <laughs> yeah okay pretty crazy huh he worked at a movie theater and he stole those trailer prints sometimes so he has that All and right. uh we well, are in good company. Yeah, we watched yeah, it. You in deserve a, each other. A, well, not it's not stole. I shouldn't say he and a liar. That, that's what happens with thirty-five millimeter okay. trailers. You can get them pretty easily because projectionists just took them home. That's a normal thing in the culture that obviously doesn't exist anymore. You can't take yeah. a hard drive home. That'd be really bad. Yeah. Uh, anyway, yeah. So we watched that again. Um, you know, on thirty-five millimeter in this class because we were we were something about color and film and and we wanted to show that for like a modern movie example on thirty-five. And that trailer just goes through the whole movie. I mean, literally, plot point by plot point. It starts with, like, I'm pregnant, Annie. And then, you know, ends with, 
you betrayed me, or something like that, and they're fighting on the lava planet and everything in between with, you know, Mace Windu yelling about, you know, something like that, and Darth Sidious, you see him become, well, you see Palpatine become Darth Sidious, all those things, it's... It just goes through the whole movie, and if you and I think I googled, uh, I watched the episode two trailer. Also, same thing. George Lucas did not care about spoilers. It's really interesting. He just didn't. That wasn't a thing for him. And and I think it's it makes sense because of what the prequel trilogy is. Yes. Like again, you know what has to happen. Like if you understand what the original trilogy plot is, you know like where Anakin has to be at the end. You know where fucking Obi-Wan has to be at the end, and you know where the galaxy has to be, and where Palpatine is going to be. Like, you know all of those pieces, and that forms, like, the primary, like, backs, like, like, like the spine of the whole story. And so, and in that way, it's like, I mean, it's very much, it has a tragic aspect to it, in that you're supposed to know that yeah. Anakin is going to fall. It's not supposed to be a surprise when he turns to the dark side. It's supposed to be this inevitable thing that you see coming, and it's supposed to be very, very tragic. They don't sell it, obviously, with the, the poor setup, but like the the payoff on it in episode three, I think is very well done. Yeah, I mean, what were, what was your reaction to episode three when you saw it? I really liked it. Like, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely saw it at least twice in the theater because I definitely saw it on the day it came out with my dad because I remember going and seeing it that like that day and and being with my dad and seeing it then and then later seeing it with my mom and my brother and the, like and again it was such a different experience because. That was when I was old enough and had, like, started becoming interested in watching movies, like, as movies properly. And so, like, I remember had, like, sitting down, I think we were at, like, a California pizza kitchen or something like that, after seeing the movie with my brother and my mom and talking to my mom about, like, the movie and how we felt about it and and stuff. And my mom wasn't, like, super into Star Wars and definitely was not super into the prequels, but she really liked Episode 3, and I really liked Episode 3 and talking about that. And it's like, I have a very vivid memory of that. And it's like, I, I remember, like, that was at an age where, like, I was aware now of, like, that I did not like episode two. And, like, I think at that age, it had been a long time since I had seen episode one. But, like, didn't like episode two. Knew the, like, the discussion around the prequels was, like, the very toxic thing it was then. And then, and, but, like, being somewhat sort of, like, like resistant to it still... But, like, maybe being a little bit swayed of, like... Because, again, I just... I thought Episode 2 was a very boring movie when I rewatched it again when it came out on DVD. But then when I went and saw Episode 3, I was like, well, this is really good. Like, this is a good movie. Like, and, P- and like, the, the general public, or, like, the, the Star Wars fan public, I think still refuses to acknowledge, in general, that Episode 3 is a really good movie. It's a really good fucking movie. Like, it is, I and, you know... It was actually very critically well received yeah. at the time, and I think it may have even gotten more Oscar nominations than the other one. Like I think it got more on like the visual effects and production design side of things. So they yeah. finally acknowledged some of those things. No, it's a really good movie. It has its flaws. You can't fix Hayden Christensen. Yeah, those sorts of things. But if he's way better in that movie than he is in Episode Two. He's way better, and the dialogue is mostly better. It still has that. Phenomenal bad line of "I'm only so in I'm so beautiful because I'm so in love." Yeah. No, I'm so in love with you. Yeah. Sorry, I say that lovingly. That's a terrible line, but it's yeah, funny. it's yeah. Like the, you have the romance scene, the like dialogue scenes are really bad. Yeah. Like that's, but there's like two of them. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm not a huge fan of General Grievous and never was. So there's still the issues there. But overall, that movie it moves. It's well paced. It's got a really good emotional core to it. 
And some of the action and spectacle on display. I mean, yeah. good God. I think... I, I wrote this when I revisited the movie in 2011 for the Blu-rays. I, re, I, re, like, I wrote a review of every movie. And the thing about episode three is that... You know, episode two was the first all-digital production ever in Hollywood. It was the first film shot digitally mm-hmm. um, for, like, a mainstream release. Um, but episode three was, I think, the first one, you know, kind of done properly as, you know, this was a more mature platform to do that with now. Yeah. And I think it still goes toe-to-toe with stuff like Avatar or anything else that is an all-digital production of... It uses CGI so well and so yeah. seamlessly. Like, there are definitely some parts where maybe it feels a little overwhelming, but at the same time... The, the, the world is created, and I don't know if it could be created any other way. Yeah. I mean, definitely. It, it's something where it's just like there's there's just so many like great, great scenes in that movie. I mean, the opening of the movie is spectacular. Yeah. Like, all the stuff in space and then going in and like having to rescue the Chancellor and then like encountering Dooku. And that scene, that fight scene with Dooku is great. And like the like sort of the reversal of fortune with Anakin and Dooku and where Anakin now is able to overpower him and then like gets the two lightsabers and fucking executes him at the behest of the Chancellor and seeing all that stuff and it's like and and you know Ian McDermott really like he fucking sells this movie so hard yes. I mean he's sometimes he maybe like ventures a little over the top but like that's when you need him to be over the top but he also I mean one of the most astounding and sort of just like terrifying scenes in all of Star Wars is that one where they're watching the play and Anakin comes in and, and Chancellor Palpatine is watching it and they're talking and he talks to, to Anakin about Darth Plagueis and like eternal life and stuff like that. And it's before he's ever really like fully played his hand on who he is to Anakin. But like it's that you finally see that step being taken of like this is how it happens. And it's yes. like it is just like this incredibly intimate fucking like it's just like terrifying scene it's just this conversation between two people but again it's the tragic element of it that like you are very well aware of at this point of who Chancellor Palpatine really is and what his objectives actually are with Anakin and but Anakin is so taken in by him because of like Anakin's sort of desire to be a hero for the Republic and, and represent the, pub, or the Republic faithfully and the Chancellor's I mean he's like the President of the United States basically is who the Chancellor is and Anakin is like this like glorified war hero. And so of course they're going to have that kind of relationship and he's going to venerate the Chancellor in that way. And it's like it manipulating him there. Like I, I just think that scene is beautiful. Yeah, so it's a phenomenal scene and I love just that the visuals in that opera scene where they're watching this weird like giant bubble thing. Yeah. It's incredible. Yeah, that's and I love that you see this step where he becomes Darth Vader before he gets the mask. Yeah. And it would have been very easy for George Lucas to have the thing where he gets out, he gets the mask on, and then Palpatine says, you from this day forth shall be known as Darth Vader. Darth Vader. But no, it happens earlier. Yeah. And I love that. And that he is Darth Vader for like half the movie. Yeah. And, you know, uh, definitely I've waxed and waned on how I exactly feel about Episode 3 over the years because... I see the perspective where you could say a lot in episode 3 feels rushed, but what I think it is, is that episodes 1 and 2 don't lay the groundwork well enough. I think episode 3 is probably exactly correctly paced for the story it needs to tell. Did episode 2 specifically need to set up Anakin as a character better? Yes. Yes. Did it need to set up Obi-Wan and Anakin as friends better? Yes. Yes. But... For what this movie, for what episode three is, you can't ask it to like do the whole trilogy on its own. Yeah, exactly. for the chapter it is telling, I think it tells it very well. Yeah, and I mean, again, Ewan McGregor is so great, and I, 
talk about like scenes that impacted you as a kid that still impact you now. Having a giant climactic lightsaber fight that is with two lightsabers of the same color yeah. will never not be yep. traumatic and interesting. Yep, exactly. Yep. Like it's it's a very it's a very subtle thing, but yes, when you've like watched those only those Star Wars movies, it is always like blue versus red, green versus red. Like sometimes a little purple gets thrown in there in the background, but like yes, it is always you have lightsabers of the clear opposing colors and the clear opposing sides clashing against one another. And yes, it's, in, it's at the end of episode three is the first time in the movies you ever see that happen, which is also sort of like it's very indicative and representative of what that movie is doing where it's, I feel like episode three does so much to sort of say it's like, hey, like the Republic's not that great and the Jedi Order is not that great and the Jedi Order is not all powerful and, it, and the Jedi Order has corruption within it, obviously, and has the potential to do great evil and great harm and it has done great harm and the Jedi have become these soldiers, basically, that are there carrying this war and all that stuff that... Like, I think episode three does a lot to blur those lines and show how, again, like, it's the whole backbone of, of the prequel trilogy is that, like, key transition of where it turns in this democracy that, that is at war shifts into becoming a fascist empire. And it's like, and that's how it happens. It's like, it doesn't, it's not just like this, like, clap and it's over and it's done and, like, we have just switched governments. It's this slow shift of power and the slow, like, you are using... The, the democratic means and the democratic sort of political mechanisms at your disposal to destroy those mechanisms and destroy those free, the freedom that the, those mechanisms allow and create this sort of like monarchical power system. And it's something that like it's a it's and it was an incredibly relevant sort of like topic of discussion back then, I think, especially for an American audience. And it's still an incredibly relevant topic of, of discussion, especially for an American audience. And it, it's. Like, it, it's something that is, like, historically... Like, you can make comparisons with Rome and stuff like that. So it's, like, historically is very appropriate as well. But it echoes so much, I think, with, like, the modern political landscape. And that people do not give the prequel movies... And just, like, the prequel sort of universe as a whole... Nearly enough credit for the way that it executes on that shift. And how bold that shift really is. Like, oh, I mean, the last hour and a half of episode three... Is so traumatic in so many expert ways of watching... Order 66 get carried yeah. out. The John Williams music is so good. So Watching good. Anakin fall as far as he does. Killing, kill, killing, killing children. Killing children. Ewan McGregor doing as much as he does to sell the sadness Obi-Wan has to go through of being kind of one of the last you know, great Jedi left and, yeah. and having to watch this all fall, crumble around him. And I think Natalie Portman is pretty good through all of that. Watching that whole thing crumble down. And then the movie, you know, just... It is a trilogy where the bad guy wins completely and unobjectively. Like, he just yes. 100% wins, and we were building that for three movies. Name another major, like, mainstream franchise that does that. Whatever your thoughts on the prequels, it is completely unique in that trajectory yeah. of evil wins 100%. And it's it's really bold, and it doesn't feel any less bold now when you watch episode three and you're like, oh, we are just watching a movie where the, ba where the good guys lose completely. Yeah. And in one case, the good guy loses himself to evil. Yeah. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah, it is again. It's it's like the one the main thing that you can sort of blame episode three or like like look at episode three and call it a bad movie for is that episodes one and two do not do the necessary narrative work to justify what episode three is. But like 
now we have the entire Clone Wars cartoon that, like, the CG animated one that, like, I think does that narrative work spectacularly. And again, like I've said this multiple times on this podcast, especially over the past few months, if you are a big Star Wars fan like me and you are interested in the prequel era and you have not watched Clone Wars, like, fucking watch it. It's on Netflix. It is so good. But then even at the time, like, going back to the other Clone Wars animated series, the original Jindy Tartakovsky one of those, like, five-minute shorts, those were also, like, all, like, set in the Clone Wars and slowly building up to Episode 3 to where the last Tartakovsky cartoon is literally General Grievous going to Coruscant and kidnapping Chancellor Palpatine and bringing him to the ship, and it's a separatist invasion of Coruscant. Like, that's how that series ends, and it's, it is that gap. And so I think I partially... I, someone have a different perspective on Episode 3 in particular than a lot of people do and, and like, did at the time because I watched all of those and adored all of those, and I think they're all fantastic pieces of animation. But it does set up that stuff really well. And, in fact, like you said earlier, that, like, you don't like General Grievous that much, and I agree, but only because Episode 3 does not do General Grievous justice. Like, the way that character is introduced in the Clone Wars cartoon is so amazing and so dark, where it is this, like, five-minute animated short where the, all, like, these, like, five Jedi basically go into this like like weird like sort of like scrap metal castle looking thing where some monster something from the separatist side is in there and it's like killed like just like hundreds of clone soldiers and they're like we need to send jedi in here and like kill this thing and they go in and it's general grievous and he's like crawling on the walls and like dropping down and like like killing people like he's like fucking kills like five jedi in that and like takes their lightsabers as trophies like, he is a fucking awesome character. The movie just never did him justice. Okay. No, I can totally imagine that. I mean, there's a lot of that in the extended universe of taking bad prequel characters and doing something with yeah. them. Yeah. Or, like, again, it's weird because that's where General Grievous was originally introduced as a character. So it's... Yeah. It's, it's an instance of a prequel movie taking an awesome prequel character and doing him badly. Yeah, it's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. All right, so uh, so that's kind of my memories of the prequels and everything. Yeah. What else do we want to say about the original trilogy? I don't... There's so little new to say, I don't yeah. even know what to talk about. Also, because, as you say, it's tough to know what were our original thoughts. I don't know. It was a long time ago. I was like five when I saw those. Yeah. Really fucking good movies. That's... They're great movies. They, they hold up, and I think A New Hope is as perfect as a movie gets, just in terms of its structure is so yeah. sound and doing the basically hero's journey... You don't. You know, it doesn't get too much better than that in terms of those archetypes in American film. And then Empire Strikes Back sequels don't get much better than that. Yeah. And Return of the Jedi has its issues, but you know what? Climaxes don't get much better than yeah. Vader and Luke and Palpatine and that three-way conversation. God, that the end of Return of the Jedi is spectacular. Yeah. And the opening of Return of the Jedi is also like an amazing opening for a movie. Yes, it's great. Yeah. But yeah, the original trilogy—they're the, incredible movies, and like they—they. They, created this pop culture phenomena for a reason and there's also a yeah. very good reason why episode 7 is leaning so heavily into what the original trilogy did as opposed to trying to sort of like represent something very different which is what the prequels did yeah I mean it's, it's I'm going to be so fascinated to see and maybe we can transition this conversation into the future yeah but like what is episode 7 because we've still only seen a tiny scrap of footage from it yeah I don't know what exact tone it's going for what story it's going to tell all of those things and I'm fascinated to see and whether it feels like sort of a warmed over rehash of original trilogy nostalgia or if it will take that as its starting point and really feel like a new 
era for Star Wars. And I really hope it's the latter. Yeah. That would be great. I hope it doesn't just kind of fall into empty nostalgia. I also think they have thrown an awful lot of talent to that movie who clearly want to do it right. And so I, I have more hope than I have dread, but we will see. It, it's something where it's like, again, like as huge of a Star Wars fan as I am, like I am still just completely ambivalent about the new movie. It's like, it's just something where, like, I think it's just a weird thing about, like, my position with Star Wars is that I like Star Wars as the, like, expanded media franchise that it is to me. And so it's like, I mean, I guess here's what it is, is that I was extremely excited to watch the Star Wars Rebels cartoon, like, after I watched all of the Clone Wars, because I knew the people who made Star Wars the Clone Wars made Star Wars Rebels, and I have trust in those people to make a fantastic Star Wars product and who understood Star Wars and had interesting things to do in that universe. And then when I watched Rebels, like, my faith was rewarded. I don't have, like, I think J.J. Abrams, like, I like that first Star Trek J.J. Abrams movie. I like Mission Impossible 3 quite a bit, but I don't necessarily, like, I don't feel like the J.J. Abrams movies I've seen, like, indicate that he's an amazing director that, like, makes me that, like, I would go see a J.J. Abrams movie because it's a J.J. Abrams movie. I don't know, I haven't really seen any of those actors in the new Star Wars movie in anything else. It's, like, the only thing, like, Lawrence Kasdan's involvement in writing the screenplay is obviously, like, something, but he's also, like, I mean, you know, Star Wars, like, Empire Strikes Back was really fucking long time ago, you know? And so, like, I have no idea if Episode Seven is going to be a good movie. Like, and, like, I don't necessarily have that sort of, like, the people that are involved with that movie are not people that I'm just uh, assume they're going to make a really good Star Wars thing. The way that, like, when Rebels came out, it was like, Clone Wars was amazing. Rebels will probably be really great, and it was. And so it's like, I want Star Wars made by people who understand and can make Star Wars, and they need to prove that. And they might, and they might not. And I'm like, I'm kind of very happy that I am in the position right now that's like, I don't really care. That's like, I would like it to be a good movie, but if it's a bad movie, it's just a bad movie. And it's like, it doesn't kill, it doesn't destroy Star Wars for me, nor does it make Star Wars for me. It just is what it is. Yeah. I mean, I would love it to be great. I'd love to be able to, because I've primarily accessed Star Wars through the yeah. movies, I'd love to be able to have another great Star Wars movie on the shelf and hopefully, you know, the promise of more in the future. And I think it's definitely a franchise worth mining more. I'm very curious to see how the original three cast members are used. Um, the one I'm, it's kind of ironic, the one I'm most excited to see is Mark Hamill, and he's the one we haven't seen yet, yeah. which is kind of good. I'm excited to just see how he's used in the in the franchise because... You know, I love Harrison Ford to death, love Han Solo to death. I think we've seen a lot of Harrison Ford throughout his career. Yeah. Mark Hamill has mostly done voice work. Also, Han Solo as a character doesn't have a huge amount no. of, like... I mean, you know, obviously, setting it so far later in the timeline gives you stuff to do with the character. Yeah. But it's like, it doesn't necessarily automatically give you interesting things to do with the character. Yeah, Luke is more interesting to me on yeah. that level. And I'm excited for all of that. And I'm super curious what they're doing with Carrie Fisher, because we haven't seen much of that either. Yeah. Other than awesome interviews out there. If you haven't yeah. seen some yeah, of those, she is interviews. a funny woman. Yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah. And, you know, I am, like... Star Wars, uh, the, the Force Awakens. Um, not technically allowed to say this in public, but whatever. There, there is a press screening I could go to. I'm not going to divulge any more than that. I'm not supposed to divulge any of it at all. But I'm not doing that, and that's in part because I want to see it with a crowd. Yeah. And I want to do that, you know, that experience of opening night and having a full house and seeing that enthusiasm because 
I do think the marketing for Force Awakens has, if nothing else, done a good job of tapping into that collective nostalgia and excitement, and I like that feeling, and I like that this is, you know, kind of the rare movie experience that, you know, maybe is going to bring a lot of people together, and I'm kind of excited to see it that way. I'm not really interested in seeing it in the super sort of sterile fashion um, that is a press sort of event. So, yes, um, very excited for all that, seeing it Thursday night. So, cool. we'll see. I mean, it's it's a weird thing where it very much snuck up on me, where I'd had my tickets for a while, and then it was like, oh, God, that's this week. Oh, shit. Because there's another big event happening in our lives this week. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But, yeah. Yeah, it's it's definitely interesting. Like, I'm... In, in a weird way, I'm almost more, like, sort of academically curious about the movie than I am, like... I'm, like, just interested in seeing the movie itself again. Like, I want to see good Star Wars movies. Like, that's something I am invested in seeing. But, like... To me, it's like what they have turned this movie into, particularly with the marketing and the direction they've gone with it, like makes it a more like academic study case of like of like building like all this stuff about like the, the sort of like nostalgia-filled sort of media landscape that we are in today, and how like heavily we mine properties from the past to produce like new media today. It's something that I find very interesting, and in some cases troubling. And like this is like the most grandiose example of that that we could possibly have and so I'm like I'm very fascinated to see can they escape the influence of the original trilogy and create something really unique and different and new and like I think that's probably not even really something we'll learn with episode 7 that'll probably more so be something that episode 8 will have to do because episode 7 ideally will serve as a bridge and like episode 8 will have hopefully almost no involvement from the original cast whatsoever because you need to get away from those characters yeah but, yeah it's 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 Extremely fascinating one way or the other. Absolutely. So, I think that about says it on Star Wars. Just wanted to have a little conversation and kind of clear the air before yeah. Force Awakens comes out. Now, other thing going on. So, Sean, you and I both graduated from college this week. Yes, we do. Yay. Yep. You got all the paperwork in? Yep. So, a saga for both of us? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck you, CU. Just really quick, just... just Bureaucracy. It doesn't... No. It doesn't want you to interface with it. No. Anyway... But we're graduating, uh, so that'll be fun. I'm seeing Star Wars the night before my graduation, which is on Friday. And, uh, yeah, are you doing the big Saturday one? I'm not really, like, getting involved with, like, okay. celebrations. It's not really my thing. Yeah. No, it's not mine either. I'm doing the Friday my department one because I'm very close with my department. Right. And so that matters to me, but I'm not doing any of the big Saturday stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's good. Yeah, I know you and I feel the same way about big, stupid ceremonies like yes. that. But anyway, um, yeah, so that's this week. Um, and then, you know, it could mean, just so everyone knows, that next week's podcast, which will be the Star Wars one, we'll talk about Force Awakens, that'll yeah. be the next show, might not be on Monday immediately, it might have to be moved around a little, we'll see what our schedules are like that weekend, just because other things might be going on, Yeah, uh, but we'll see. Now, after that, I've had several people ask me, you are both graduating college, does that mean the podcast is ending? Sean, do you want to end the podcast? No. Okay, neither do I. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in fact, it's... Uh, almost sort of the opposite that now like once I finish up this essay that I like the last essay basically I need to write for college uh, like once I finish that like my plans are actually like to become more involved in like write more stuff for the site with like that Halo 5 review sort of being like a test to see what I could write yeah and like I talked about on an earlier podcast about like writing something of when we were talking about Jessica Jones about writing up something about like episodic storytelling and how that's changing I've started writing that piece and I'll probably finish it and I also would like to write up stuff about, like, Fallout 4 and Assassin's Creed Syndicate and stuff like that. And yeah. Absolutely. Get that out there. Because now, like, because being an English literature major, 
you will you you write a lot of fucking essays and you're basically constantly in the process of writing essays once you get into your last two years of being a, a literature major so like now that like that outlet is no longer exists for me to just like write for i need to find something else yes absolutely so same kind of thing for me here um i hope well i will have more time to fill in on the site i have another job that i do for money because the podcast does not pay me a living wage yeah as you all know but uh yeah so my plan you know and i don't know exactly how things will change in the future obviously certain things will be in flux yeah but the basic idea is if Sean and I both want to do the podcast and we have things to talk about, and I know 2016 is not a year where we want to miss things because there will be Persona 5, there will be Uncharted 4, there yeah. will be more Doctor Who, there will be all sorts of things. There's no intention for the podcast to go anywhere. Maybe the day it comes out on will change. You know, so things like that. Yeah. But it'll, it'll, hopefully, if anything, we can put more resources towards it is my hope. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. But, like, it, I think it is, like, with graduation stuff, like, in the near future, like, yes. the podcast is not going to be consistently weekly like it has been. Yeah. Like, for, like, basically this whole, like, semester from our perspective. Yes. And, uh, you know, there might be a little break during the holidays because that just happens. But all your other podcasts do that, too. So don't blame us for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we need to get geared up for, like, end of the year stuff, too. Yes. You know? I mean,. We've got, you know, I, the Star Wars episode could wind up being our last one of 2015, and maybe that'll be a good season finale for us. Yeah. And then we'll come back in 2016, we'll obviously have to talk about the Doctor Who Christmas special and our year-end lists and things. I'm mostly focusing on my TV top ten, you're mostly focusing on the video game top ten. Yep. I'm just, if you're wondering, I'm not even doing a movie top ten this year. It's, I accomplished a lot of other personal goals this year, but I did not have time to watch Every movie in existence, including this enormous stack of screens yeah. here. That I mean, Jonathan, if you want to start building a top ten movies of 2015 list, I think you have all the movies of 2015 on this table right now. I do, and and I've got a stack here that I made that's just the ones I want to watch. There, it ends there, and that's about four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten movies. I'm not going to get through all these, yeah. but we'll see. Um, and maybe I'll talk about that, but I definitely, my TV top ten, the only thing I'm waiting on is, actually tonight is the Fargo finale, and that's the last show on my list that is still airing, so I have to see that. A lot of people published a top ten list before Fargo ended. I don't get that. I, you have to see the whole season for me. Yeah. Anyway, uh, and so that might come out on the site this week, the text version, but definitely talk about it on the podcast early next year, and I'll see what I do for video games. I think I'll do a video game top five, but you'll be the one doing a full top ten. Yeah, probably. Uh, there, there, there actually there are a couple of games that I'm going to, I'm looking forward to playing over the break yeah. that will probably be able to fill out a, a decent top ten list. Yes, so definitely. So that I will not be forced to put Metal Gear Solid Five just to make it ten, just to fill it out. I should hopefully not be in that situation. Yes. Metal Gear Solid Five will feature on that list in like a special category no matter what, but... Okay, I'm interested to talk to you about that. But yeah, so that, those are the plans for the future. So if you're worried about the podcast going somewhere, not the plan, you know? Yeah. And uh, definitely excited to keep going. This has been a good year for the podcast, I feel like. so. Yeah, definitely. And I'm excited to see what, where 2016 takes us. But anyway, next week, or maybe middle of next week or something, whenever we have the time, will be our Force Awakens review. I'm amazed it's upon us. It feels like, like actually you said the whole life of the podcast, I think it's like episode 15 or something where we reported on the Disney buying Lucasfilm yeah. news. So it really has been years in the making. This is season four of the podcast, and that was season one. So it's been a long time. Yeah. So anyway. I'm, God, it's, I'm so happy that it's like we'll be able to just like have that movie be out like yes. it's like it's just like this weird pressure i feel like i've been under like for like basically almost my entire college career yeah all right well anyway uh may the force be with you are we really ending it with that i don't know i couldn't think of a better way to end okay fine jonathan may the force be with you always